Welcome, welcome, one and all, to Funkatopia Live. I am your host, Mr. Christopher, with my illustrious co-host, Mr. Jeff Page. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Are you be okay with that? Welcome to Funkatopia. Are you going to be okay with that? Like for the rest of your career Man, here for the rest of my life, fern is going to be my thing. <laughs> I'm going to fern until I can't fern anymore. <laughs> God. You wait till our guest gets on, and she's gonna get furnt also. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, and I don't blame me. I'm gonna switch places because you got that fancy, uh, fancy design in the back. Yeah, we are gonna have an amazing time tonight. Uh, we obviously do a little bit of a pre-show to kind of welcome you guys in, talk a little bit about some of the goings on in the uh, well in the music world today, which we don't really have all much to talk about because I have been so consumed. <laughs> with uh susan rogers book and i've just kind of just been uh this book is friggin' amazing for those who have unfortunately i have a green screen thing so it's i guess there must be some green on the <laughs> yeah. on the book it's like breaking it out but uh yeah it's this is what it sounds like i can actually show you guys a copy of the book uh there it is that's that's the copy of the book you absolutely have to get this it is really a fantastic book definitely check it out we're going to be talking to her about this book as well and uh yeah so one of the reasons why we do this little bit of a pre-show is to kind of give you guys an opportunity to be able to come in and hang out and also just get everybody situated because we'll start the show uh, right at eight o'clock. Uh, Dr. Susan Rogers is already in the green room, which I'm right. so, so excited about. Because, I'm glad she's um, here already. I love that when that happens. Um, oh, yeah. let me just say, um, if when you guys get the book, because we know a lot of you are going to get it during this program, at some point you're going to buy this book. The first thing you want to do is listen to it. Before we even open, because the book is called "This Is What It Sounds Like," so just listen to the book for a minute, then start you know reading. <laughs> I meant to add this question. I kept. I thought about this question when I was looking at the book. I thought about this like uh, a few times, wondering if the title came from Prince's song "This Is What It Feels Like." Mm. Like mm. what? Because every time I read that title, that's the flow that I. I think of, and uh, I was just like, it's probably not. <laughs> not everything is about Prince, Chris. Uh, but anyways, it, it is a really fantastic book. The other thing cool to think about it, and I actually, we actually have, um, we actually have the Amazon link. And on top of that, I'm go we'll go ahead and share the Amazon link so that we can, we're just kind of prep you guys up uh, because we are going to bring her in here in just a minute. I'm going to copy this. This is the Amazon link, but also just to make you guys life a little bit easier. I'm going to put this in here. Uh, I also set up a page at funkatopia.com slash Susan so that you guys don't have to memorize the Amazon link. You can just go to funkatopia.com slash Susan and the links right there. It's just a picture of the book and then the link. But of course, once this interview is done, We'll also post up the interview on that page as well and, and maybe some uh, some other stuff on that page. So uh, if you are listening on the Funked Up app, which, hey, I remembered to start the Funked Up app right during the pre-show. Uh, we have folks from all over the world listening right now via the Funked Up app on the Purple Yoda radio. Our online uh Online radio station, we also have it on the phone as well. It's ASCAP licensed, so you can actually don't you can actually not feel guilty about listening to the music. So uh, it is an amazing, amazing time. And of course, right now we're broadcasting live over the Funked Up app. So I'm sorry if we're interview uh, interrupting your 
your your night of listening to music. Maybe you wanted to chill or whatever, but I'm guarantee you, you're going to have an amazing time tonight because one of the things that we wanted to to really get into tonight was I spent a lot of time listening to a lot of interviews uh, with Dr. Rogers over the years. And uh, I wanted to try to do my absolute best to make, to ask some questions that have not been asked before. Um, and that was really difficult because I think she has been asked everything under the sun. Uh, but luckily this new book has gotten, um, has given me a lot of new material and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Obviously, we're going to be talking about uh, a lot of prints tonight, but we're also going to be talking about the neuroscience of uh, music and uh, and some of the things that she addresses in her uh, new book. And um, just we, I want to talk about all those things that we were talking about before we even went on the air. We were talking, you were talking about the, the frequencies and um, that stuff. I mean, we just had we get some in depth conversations, and, 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 and it's uh, going to be fun because of all the conversations we've had with other artists, other musicians that we've dealt with over the years. So this will be great to get all those things out. And let me just mention real quick, for those of you on Facebook who are watching on Facebook, we are aware in case you aren't that there is an issue with comments. So um, we're not seeing the comments in the feed right now and, uh, at this time. So we're not able to necessarily respond. And those <laughs> of you that can switch over to YouTube, you may want to because I'm sure you have a lot to say as well. And, uh, but we're not able to um, respond to anything in Facebook at the moment, just until they fix it. We don't know what the issue is. So yeah, but it doesn't have anything. It's, it's not us. It's, it's, it's a Facebook thing right now, right? Well, uh, I, it looks like it is a Facebook thing because I went to the page directly and I couldn't even see any comments or pull anything up. So uh, who knows? What uh, well, is, and, so. I, and I actually do see some comments that are popping up on Facebook right now. We're getting them now. So, well, okay. I'm seeing them on here. So we'll we'll see what comes through. But just have patience. If you guys want to uh, switch over from Facebook to YouTube, once Facebook fixes their little issue here, uh, all uh, almost 23,000 followers on Facebook. So uh, I'm just going to be quite a few of you that are going <laughs> to switch over to YouTube if you want to chat. I did actually take some pre-questions. We did a post and we said, you know, some specific questions that you wanted to ask uh, Susan, go ahead and, and put them up there. So we've kind of integrated them into the night. Uh, but I also expect that there's going to be some uh, activity here as well. So uh, all I'm seeing is YouTube comments as far as StreamYard is concerned, but that's okay. It's all good. I'm so excited. <laughs> Man, yeah. So uh, basically, I think what you may have to do, Jeff, uh, if you can keep an eye on the Facebook page like on a separate tab or whatever and just make sure we're not losing any type of important yeah, i'm trying to pop over and, and get it to come up with with comments on mine i can't even get them so let me uh let me play a little bit i'm gonna yeah. mute myself just for a second so yeah. you don't hear the feed come back through yeah he's gonna get uh sometimes when he gets frustrated he curses a lot so we have to mute him out and we got to keep it kid friendly. Uh, but again, yes, tonight we're going to be uh, spending some time with the amazing, legendary Dr. Susan Rogers. And uh, she's already in the green room. So I'm I'm going to be bringing her in here in uh, just one second because I want to make sure that uh, you see what Jeff Page has got going on. But uh, yes, yes, if you guys want to go ahead and chat and participate in the chat, you might want to switch over to YouTube, youtube.com slash Funkatopia. Again, if you are listening on the Funked Up app, enjoy yourselves there's nothing that you have to worry about because there's no chat functionality that will feed over here so you're all good what's now, up the funkatopia app we've decided is our guilt-free radio because of the fact that it's ascap licensed so guilt-free radio right there <laughs> so that should be our new slogan guilt-free I mean, radio for real, for real. 
<laughs> but since all you fine folks are in here uh, from YouTube and everybody's hanging out, and which I know that a lot of people are bummed out because most of these people are Facebook folks. I mean, so many of our uh, friends are on Facebook. So hopefully they'll be able to figure that out because um, that's a bummer. But that's okay. Um, maybe, possibly. I'll, I'll see if I can uh, disconnect and then um, I'll see if I can disconnect and, and reconnect on Facebook and maybe that will that will uh, cause it. Well, from when I when I checked our StreamYard thing, there was a post that popped up and said they reached they reached out to Facebook. So I I don't think it's our direct connection. It was a very specific thing. But either way, we're doing the best. I'm I'm watching the tabs. I'm trying to keep an eye out for you guys, looking for your comments. Um, and uh, we'll just move on. The show must go on, and we're gonna have a great time anyway. I'm still excited. I'm trying to be calm. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I am too, but I I also want to try to uh, try to get um get some people in here as well from from that. So let me let me see if I can disconnect Facebook here real quick because I just want to I just want to see if we can reconnect here and maybe that'll work. Let's do this for it. Yeah, so let's just see what happens. Yeah. It's reconnecting to Facebook right now, so hopefully everything will work because I mean what's to lose. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's worth a shot. Yeah, so we just uh, disconnected everybody from Facebook. So please, everybody from Facebook reconnect and uh, we'll take care of you. But for right now, I want to thank everybody for tuning in, but we're going to go ahead and bring uh, Dr. Susan Rogers in right now, just a, a couple minutes early. Just a couple minutes early. All right. Everybody, welcome. There she is, Dr. Susan Rogers. How are you? I'm great. Nice to see you, Mr. Christopher and Jeff. It's nice been, to see you. It, it's been absolutely, I'm so glad that we actually got you on the show because we have so many questions uh, that we want to ask you. And there's just, I mean, it's just, it's a laundry list of, of that can't even begin. Good, <laughs> we don't good, really good. even know where to start. So it, again, it's fantastic to have you on board. And uh, hopefully, you know, we can just actually, you know what? It's not even eight o'clock, but we're going to do it anyways. We're just going to go ahead and just get we're just going to go ahead and go right into it because I can't even imagine what wasting time with you looks like. So, oh, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm sure you have an opener and there are things that you want to ask. But I, I you had mentioned that you had um, heard a lot of interviews that I've done and, and I've told a lot of the same Prince stories a few times, but I thought of one today. It's a tiny little story, but I don't think I've ever shared it before. So I saved it. It just popped into my head today and I thought I'm going to tell these guys. So uh, we were in Los Angeles, you know, this would have been the mid eighties and I was waiting for him at the studio at Sunset Sound. And I got a phone call from Gilbert Davison, who Gilbert was his, uh, a driver, a valet, a friend, Anyway, Gilbert called and he said, our car is broken down. They were a few miles down the road. He said, our car is broken down. We just, Prince is standing out here on the street, somewhere on Melrose or something like that. He's standing out here on the street. Just come down here and pick us up. And I said, yep, yeah, be right there. And I drove my car down. Another car I had in Los Angeles was some little rental car. And of course, it would be a little economy car because why does an engineer need an expensive car? I was just going from the hotel to the studio and back. So the uh, his management got me a, a cheap car. So I went <laughs> and there, you know, right, right in Hollywood. 
I, I still remember, I don't remember exactly what street it was, but I remember it was mid-afternoon and standing under a shady tree next to the broken car was Prince. And he just looked like he was just kind of fuming, but he was standing there he, rather than waiting in the car. He's standing out in public, standing against the car and Gilbert was there and I picked them up. They got in my little car and, <laughs> and we're driving back to the studio. And this little car I had was a just kind of a little poo box. It just was a cheap little car. And Gilbert was sitting in the front and Prince was in the back. And Prince only said one sentence, tell them to get you a better car next time. <laughs> How long did it take him to get you a better car? Oh, I, I didn't even ask. It was just one of those things he says, you know, like he, he said to me and Peggy McCreary once, you guys work for me. Why don't you dress better? You know, we were in jeans and sweatshirts. We're recording engineers. You work for me. Why don't you dress better? And Peggy and I looked at each other and we looked at him like, you think you give us time to go shopping? Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. It seems like that starts with yeah. pitch. <laughs> that, doesn't, yeah. Yeah, that, that absolutely positively does not make any sense. And, uh, but yeah, it, it is what it is. I can't imagine what, I think one of the questions is, uh, regarding how much you actually got paid, not specific dollar amount, but I think it was the, somebody was asking hmm. how you got paid. So we'll get a question. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so here is what I have. I want to make sure that we introduce you properly. We have a very special guest tonight, as you can see, and she opened with a unheard story before. So that's fantastic. I am by, be, obviously, as you can tell, I'm beyond excited to have here. She is a literal legend behind the board in a variety of different ways. And she has proved without a doubt that women in the production arena of the music industry are without a doubt a force to be reckoned with. And uh, she was completely at the helm for Prince's biggest selling albums and then some, uh, serving as Prince's engineer from 1983 to 1987 and working in whole or in part on, uh, let's see, uh, Purple Rain, Around the World in the Day, Parade, Sign of the Times. Uh, there's also The Flesh in there, Apollonia 6, The Family, The Madhouse Albums, Jill Jones, Andre Simone's AC, Sheila E. and Romance 1600, uh, Sue Ann's Blue Velvet, Maserati, 100 Miles Per Hour, uh, Eric Leeds' Times Square, Candy Dolfer's Sexuality, uh, Jesse Johnson's Every Shade of Love, Tevin Campbell's Tevin, Mavis Staples' The Voice, Wendy and Lisa's albums, Sheena Easton's Lover and Me. I mean, I mean, just and obviously probably hundreds of hours of stuff that is still buried in the vault. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, you better put your hands together <laughs> for the legend and icon, Dr. Susan Rogers. <laughs> hey, everybody. That's pretty good, Jeff. <laughs> I got to ask you about those a little later on, ask you about those guitars you've got behind you. I'm intrigued. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. My, yeah, I mean, my toys, my pride and joys, some of them. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I have to ask, you know, obviously I can't thank you enough for being on the show, but it amazes me that you were such, you know, a humble human being considering your amazing accomplishments. Um, do you not grasp the immense impact that you had on the industry and how most Prince fans hold you in so revered? I mean, how do you stay down to earth? I don't grasp that, you know, I, I don't. I think I'm, I'm very typical of a lot of engineers. Um, you get into it because you love the work and uh, you get an opportunity 
to do the work and it makes you so happy. Uh, you're so grateful that people give you the opportunity. They hire you and you get to be in this business and you get to serve music and do the things you love. And I think the thinking about it stops there for me, you know, be, and I think for a lot of people too, beyond that, you don't think about it. It's, it's funny, but you meet some of these great, great record producers, really legendary folks. They are some of the most humble people you'll ever want to know. They're humble because they know how hard this is. This business is really tough. And you know how many disappointments and failures there are. It's the arts. There's a lot of failure. So mm -hmm. it's that failure that keeps you recognizing, you know, don't get too high over the highs. Don't get too low over the lows. Just cruise right there in the middle. And, um, and you'll have a long career. You'll you'll have a good time as well. So I do feel the love from Prince fans, and that's like um, that's just like one pilot light recognizing another. I loved Prince too. I was a Prince fan when I joined him, and I know what that love for Prince feels like. So I try to keep their pilot lights lit with my own. Absolutely. I love that. When, when was it that you actually realized that people were noticing you and your work with him? Well, there'd be the occasional thing here and there uh, on, on tour. Uh, you know, sometimes people would seek me out and they'd want to say hello, but that was pretty rare. I think it was um, later, much, much later uh, in the 2000s when I started getting asked occasionally to do interviews. And I would always say yes. I still always say yes, because I admire and respect Prince so much that I want to keep his name alive. I want to keep his memory alive. Anything I can do to help circulate stories about him, memories of him, keeping his, uh, his legend out there. Of course, I'm going to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and I mentioned this at the, at the top, you know, you really kicked open the doors for, for women in this industry. I know that you know, people like Peggy were, you know, are already doing and there was a lot of other ones that are out. But I, I think you really, I mean, with Prince and the whole Purple Rain, I mean, it, it was just so out there in front. I mean, do you feel that um, women in this industry, it, is it getting better or about the same in regards to the numbers of engineers out there? Here's the problem with women in the industry, uh, and thank you for saying that. I, I know that I was a pioneer along with several others, but there weren't that many of us. So, um, yeah, so the, the problem is a lot of women are interested in having careers in the recording studio, and they have the capacity to do it. They study and they work hard and and they practice and they get in the studio. But there's one problem for all of us, all of us women, and it's a really tough one to solve. And that's the fact that it takes so long to finally get a purchase on this career. You have to realistically work for at least 10 years nonstop pretty much before you finally are established and people know who you are and you now have a toehold and now you can start building your career. You're going to be in your mid-30s when that happens, and that's just the age where you have to, if you're a woman, decide whether or not you're going to have kids. Uh, men don't have that same problem, but women do, and having children is uh, 
far more physically and psychologically taxing on a woman than a man. So we do see a lot of women get off to the exact same start as their male counterparts. And what happens is just when their careers are starting to blossom, that's when they decide, no, I got to take this fork in the road. Oh, it sounds like that Yogi Berra quote. If you see a fork in the road, take it. I got to go this way in this fork in the road. I want to have kids. And what they think to themselves is, and then after I have kids and the kids are a couple of years old, I'll get back into it. But that's really hard to do. Really hard to do. Wow. Yeah, I can't even, I can't even imagine the decisions that you have to make. I mean, I, I think what ends up happening with, again, with women in general, it's like you have to, you know, in some many cases, derail your career in order to to have a family and to kind of focus on things. And, and you know, that's one, I would say, disadvantage in, in that particular aspect, as you were just mentioning. But um, yeah, I, I mean, choice. yeah, that's, that's yeah. But it, those are just some some warm up questions here. So I want to get into some, some specific things now, because and for those that don't know, uh, we are speaking with Dr. Susan Rogers, obviously um, the recording engineer for Prince from 1983 to 1987. Uh, she has a new book out now, and uh, I, I'll, I'll hold it up. But the problem is, is that obviously I have a green screen behind me. So the problem is, and uh, I'll make myself a little bit larger. The problem is, is that uh, it's picking up some of the green on this book, but it... <laughs> It is. That's kind of funky, actually. Looks so cool. Yeah, but I will. Uh, I'm actually going to put up a picture of the book right here so you guys can see it. The book is called "This Is What It Sounds Like" and what the music you love says about you. We're going to talk about this, um, and it's written by yourself and uh, Ogi Ogas. Is that? Mm -hmm. uh, can you Ogie. tell me a little bit about mm -hmm. uh, Ogi? Yeah. So in 2019, I was interviewed by Ogi for a book that he wrote with a fellow named Todd Rose. And the book was called Dark Horse. It's a really, really wonderful book. It's a book about people who've um, won a certain kind of race, a certain kind of cultural race, um, unexpectedly. Uh, someone who came from out of left field and and managed to achieve a lot. And, and I was honored to be included in that book. Uh, so after we talked for many, many hours, Ogi came up to me afterward and he said, this is what I do. I'm a professional co-author. And how would you like to write a book about music? And I said, well, uh, my students know more about music than I do. I, I can't. I'm not a musician. But what I can write about is music listening. That's what I've been doing my whole life. From the time I was a child, I was obsessed with records, not with being a musician and playing music or writing it or singing it or performing it. I loved records, mm -hmm. which might might suggest that, okay, well, you'll have a career as a DJ maybe, or, or maybe a record executive or a manager, but I wanted to serve music in the recording studio. Um, so anyway, I, I, I spent my time as a listener, as a record maker. Then when I got my PhD, I studied the science of listening. And then as a teacher, I'm, I'm helping students to, uh, to realize their dreams in the music business. So music listening is my musicality. My relationship with music, like most people's, is that of the listener. I'm on input as a listener. We all are. Whereas the music creators are on output. 
there's a big role for us out there. Yeah, we're going to have a we're going to talk a lot about the uh the book here because I have so many questions that I've I've always wanted to to ask and and Jeff Page did also, but uh for those who are interested in the book, absolutely pick it up. It's fantastic. Um it is a great great read. You can check it out at funkatopia.com/susan. That's f u n k a t o p i a.com/susan. And you'll be able to find the link there to purchase it on Amazon. Please make sure you pick it up. Hardcover is awesome, but they also have it available on uh, Kindle as well. And of course, you know, you can probably get it at your local bookstore as well. And when we're done with this, I'll place this video uh, up on that page. So if you miss anything, that's going to be fantastic. Uh, also, what I found really, really cool about this book is that there is an accompanying website called thisiswhatitsoundslike.com where there are specific songs that you can listen to that accompany the text in the book. So, you know, you, the, you have the reader stop and then listen to a song and then you share observations about that song, which I love. I, I just love that concept. And um, I always said that if I wrote a book, I would have to do it this way because um, where there are accompanying songs and playlists, mainly because, um, and I don't know if you're like this or not, but I am horrible with dates and times. I know some people can just, you know, our good friend that just passed, uh, Wally Safford, we're going to talk about him for a second uh, in a bit. But he is like one of these guys where you say, what were you doing on January 3rd, 1984? Oh. Like, oh, we were here, da, 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 da. We went here and then he was driving a black Ford and I was like, oh my gosh. I'm not like that. I mean, even down to the year, sometimes it's a little bit of a challenge. But if you can tell me, what song was playing on the radio, I can tell you exactly where I was living, the friends I had, I mean, down to minute details. And I feel horrible about it because, I mean, I just think it's so disrespectful to not recall details. Like, <laughs> But during your studies, have you found that this is common for for a lot of people? I hope I'm not alone. <laughs> uh, music processing is a funny thing. And as art forms it, it go, it kind of stands out a little bit. So when we process music, when we're listening to music, our brains can attend to many different features of it. So your auditory signal, it's coming up from your cochlea and it's coming up through the auditory brainstem and it's going up. It's kind of terminating right here above your ears. But what ends up happening is once that auditory signal gets up there, you can independently focus on the lyrics. You can focus on the groove. You can focus on just the sounds. You can focus on the melody or the harmony. You can focus on the style of the record. You can focus on just the, uh, the, the, the overall package of the record. So there's a lot of different regions of your brain that can attend to and enjoy that record. That means Music listening is really easy for us to encode as a memory. Now, when it's encoding as a memory, other neural patterns are going to hitch a ride onto that. So in your case, when you were encoding the actual neural pattern that corresponded to the song, you were also encoding the people you were with, the places you were with. Mm -hmm. You were encoding the actual external stimuli in your life and you linked those two together. So memories of the one will often trigger memories of the other. In my case, in the case of a lot of other people, when you're listening to a song and you're, you're, you're processing it deeply, what I do and have always done since I was a little kid is 
I picture the musicians in the studio. It's my automatic go-to visualization. I love imagining that I'm right there while they are performing that record. It's my favorite fantasy. So likewise, when I hear a a record that I haven't heard in a long time, bammo, my brain is going to call up those same visualizations, those same fantasies that I enjoyed, my mental treat that I enjoyed while I was listening to the record. It's an automatic process. Wow. That's That's funny because for me, I can usually tell how I felt when I first heard a song, Mm -hmm. like what I was feeling. But after that, what ends up happening is every small nuance of the song, whether if, if it's musically, the, the little side note, the extra ding that might have been here, uh, vocally, some extra run or riff or something, almost to where people think there's something wrong with me because if a song comes on, I'm hearing and remembering those little things that were not the actual song. They were just snuck in there in the engineering. But yeah. as far as who was with me, what else was going on in my life, not so much. It's just all the minute, smallest details mm. of the song. That's that's what sticks with me. It's so interesting to me, this whole individualization, <clears throat> pardon me, individualization of music processing. So a record is a record is a record. We could play something right now, and acoustically speaking, we'd all be hearing the same thing. But the magic happens when it goes up into our brains, and that's where we're each hearing a different record. We're each experiencing something different. I have a friend, a great guitar player named Craig Northey from the band Odds, and uh, he's a wonderful musician. And Craig told me when he was a kid and he listened to records, he always imagined how that record could be better. Like what, what guitar part could they have added? What else could they have done to make this record better? And as he was describing that to me, I just looked at him and I thought, I've never had that thought. I, I, we're, we're all such, you know, we were both little kids right around the same time. He's listening to music and thinking, now you know what they could have done. I'm listening to music and I'm picturing the performers in the studio and I'm just lost in a trance. I became a record maker to make my fantasies come true. He became a successful musician to make his fantasies come true. Yeah, so he was a lot more analytical about not only his work, but other people's work as well. Yeah. Analytical about, oh, I want to participate. That's what these guys are doing. But, you know, if I had a guitar in my hands, what could I be doing? How could I contribute? I believe in my heart of hearts that little children know who they are. I think little children have a good sense of what they're good at, what they're not good at, what they like and what they dislike. I think adults try to get in there and shape and mold that. But I think if you leave kids alone, they can kind of tell you what they're cut out for. And I think uh, Craig was certainly cut out to be a musician. I've heard similar stories from other musician friends of what record listening was like for them when they were little. It's different. It was different than it was for me. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, everybody, you know, just between Jeff Page and myself, we're we were thinking, you know, just I mean, there's obviously different approaches that we have with listening to music and and what we connect to. But you know, to kind of talk a little bit about albums in general, talking about some specifics, I know some some Prince fans are losing their minds out there. Uh, Prince was at his artistic peak in the window of 
time that you worked there. I mean, and obviously before that as well, I mean, with 1999 and all that, I mean, you and controversy and dirty mind. And I mean, you were obviously a fan before you even got, uh, got involved with him, but um, I mean, working on purple rain may have been considered lightning at a bottle to many, but then you did it again with around the world in a day. And then you did it again with parade. And then you did it again with sign of the times, which many consider to be his best album. And I, you know, I, I don't, I think you already answered the question about, you know, did you ever let that, you know, go to your head? But one thing I was curious about, I had Morris Hayes on the show and he literally said that the whole time that he was playing with Prince, he always felt like he was in way over his head. <laughs> like, like, like he was just like, he was oh. called out, you know, and I, I, I can't imagine performing under that mental duress that's going on in your head, but the, he, he felt that way the entire time he was working with Prince. Did you ever feel that way? Like you were just kind of, oh, he's, he's not going to be happy with what's going on here. <laughs> I feel like you're like overwhelmed. Oh yeah. Morris is so honest. That's, <laughs> I, I think sure. I would be willing to bet that every single musician who's ever played with Prince has had that feeling. Like, how am I going to keep up? I can tell you when I joined Prince in 83, and I'm sure this was the case before and it was the case after I left, that train that he was driving moved really fast. I don't just mean that the days went really quickly and that we worked really hard. It, his ideas came so fast. He was churning out albums at a ridiculous pace. Yeah. So every single one of us who were simply mere mortals mm. realized I'm on this train and it's <laughs> flying and we can't stop. We can't stop. We have to, whatever it is we're doing, we have to keep up with his pace. So you're always feeling like this thing is going faster than what you can manage. But for me, and I'll bet it was true for his musicians and other folks as well, you got your pride, his pride. <laughs> and your pride tells you, if he can do it, I'm going to do it. And I, 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 have, I have a fraction of the decisions to make that he has to make. I have a fraction of the responsibility, a fraction of the pressure. If he can do it at that level, I can surely handle my gig. And yeah, you work really hard, but you, um, I think this is one of the reasons why so many people who worked for him were so humble because you realized you were as hard as you were working and all the great things you were doing, you were just a, 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 um, still beneath his level of accomplishment for sure. Right. Wow. So, so with that, throughout your, how should I say, tour of duty, mm. um, it's a different f scenario for you as opposed to the musicians uh, being the engineer. And um, so how often, and this is again back to the, like you said, Morris Day being very honest, how often did you really just want to like, throw your hands up in the air, like the big sigh, I give up? only to regroup and then as usual <laughs> oh. in your style would be Susan Rogers style, knock it out the park because you had to regroup yourself. I don't, can't imagine you have someone to take you off the ledge. Yeah. I snapped once. I snapped once. And, uh, you hear that. <laughs> yeah, oh. we were again at sunset sound in Los Angeles and, uh, God, I'd just been working so, so hard. And it, 
fortunately for me, he just happened to be in a really good mood that day. But we're in the studio and there was some someone else, another musician was there. It might have been Sheila, it might have been someone else. But I was trying to do something for him as fast as possible. And I mispatched something. I did something wrong and pressed the wrong button. And he started teasing me and he decided that um, what he would do this would be this would be a good idea. He was going to find me, just like he find his musicians on stage, like James Brown did. You know, if you if you you hit a wrong note, you make a mistake, Prince would turn and point to you, and that's a fifty dollar fine. I don't know if he ever collected on those things or not. His musicians could tell you, but he suddenly decided, well, it'd be a good idea to find his engineers as well. So I made some mistake, and he said, Susan, what I'm going to start doing, I'm going to start fining you every time you make a mistake. That's fifty dollars right there, <laughs> and I just snapped. And I grabbed my purse and I said, you want money from me? You have my whole entire life. You have my entire life. We are joined at the hip 24-7. I am on call every single minute of every single day. And I have been for years. I don't get any sleep. I don't have a personal life. I haven't seen my family. I haven't been on a date. Now you want my money too? You could have my money. And I, <laughs> he was sitting in a chair and I was standing over him and I opened up my wallet and I took out whatever cash I had and I threw it at him. And I just threw it at him right in his lap. My God. And I just said, there, there's my money. Now you have everything. You have everything of me. I <laughs> turned around. And I walked out of the room. And I'm walking out of the room thinking, oh, oh, oh. I, 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 I probably just lost my job. Oh, oh no. But, but I took five minutes in the bathroom to just be quiet just calm down. And I came back in and I seem to remember the details are vague on this part. I, I think the money had been gathered up. Neatness had been restored <laughs> and we just resumed. I didn't, <clears throat> I didn't snap very often. That was the one time I snapped and he knew that there were so many times when I was right on the edge and didn't fall off that cliff. I kept it cool. I maybe had to go out and take five minutes and take a little breather, but I was always, I was always cool. I always kept it together. So when he saw me snap, he knew, okay, <laughs> that maybe was the wrong thing at the wrong time. He let it go. He let it go. Um, Thank, I'm thankful that he did. Wow. Yeah. I think everybody has those moments. I mean, you have them in relationships, you have them. And yeah, I mean, but I can't imagine, you know, putting in putting in those types of hours with somebody and then having them you know you know kind of seem ingrateful in a way uh for your efforts and just you know it's yeah it, that that causes any person to snap you don't have to be a neuroscientist to know that yeah and, and I, you know I, I i idolized him if he said we need to work 48 hours we need to work 48 hours then that I believed him, the things that he said, I, I, the things that he asked for, I believed that they were necessary. I suppose I still do. He's saying, here's what you need to do to help this train keep going at this pace. And I never questioned it. Never, never questioned it. The whole time I was with him, whatever needed to be done, I'm doing it. I had the greatest job in the world as far as I was concerned. And I so admired him and his, his, his talent and what we were putting out there in the world. Of course, I'm going to contribute. I remember him saying, he would say things like, uh, he, came, he came downstairs. We were at home in, in Minnesota. He came downstairs to the home studio. This was the studio when he lived on Galpin Road in Chanhassen. 
And uh, he said, last night while I was asleep, we sold three quarters of a million records. So, you know, records would come out on Tuesday like movies. So this must have been a, a Wednesday morning. Overnight, the record had sold three quarters of a million just overnight. I remember him saying that. He didn't reflect on those sorts of things very often. But when he did, you, you recognized the awe and the pride that he had in, yeah, I just sold three quarters of a million records overnight. And for the youth of today who might be tuning in, that was when you had to go to a store and buy a record. <laughs> you don't stream it. You, you, you get to the store, you put your money down, and you buy that record, and you take it out the door. So that happened three quarters of a million times overnight. That's just amazing. Yeah, it is definitely amazing. And I, I remember those days. Uh, I don't necessarily miss those days. I like the fact that you can order something and have it brought to you. But yeah, I we all remember those days for sure. But you're talking about being able to trust him when he would say something and you would just do it. I mean, are there recordings that you can think of that you were involved in that maybe had some, this is kind of like one of those, um, uh, we talked a little bit about binaural beats, but not really nothing necessarily like that. But is there something that you were involved in recording that had some very inconspicuous pieces that you think most people miss? Like maybe, maybe possibly some subliminal stuff uh, or even an unusual sample that was kind of tucked away in the mix, hidden somewhere that you can recall that you're thinking, why is he doing this? And then Mm. No, if he put it on record, he wanted you to hear it. So he would put those uh, kind of cryptic messages. Sometimes he'd speak into his guitar pickups. This isn't really Maserati. This is Prince. He says that on a Maserati record. He was doing a, we were doing a song to give to Mark Brown's band, Maserati, and we had just finished recording it, and he had his guitar in his lap, and he picked up the guitar, and he spoke. <laughs> spoke into the pickups because the pickups of course it's just a magnet and a yeah. coil it's like a microphone so he speaks into it and he says this isn't Mater Maserati this is really Prince <laughs> so he'd do little things like that but uh, I think he, you know he wanted you to find those things he wouldn't hide anything yeah I don't think I've, I've heard that I don't know what song it is I don't think I've heard I that remember wow that is amazing I did, I've never heard that or noticed that oh, well when you were Working with him, uh, I know many times you've mentioned when it was time for vocals, he had everyone leave the room. So um, he would handle all of that on his own and then come back in and finish whatever you needed to do. But when that happened, did, did he ever sneak anything in there after the fact? Now, what I mean here is, um, did he ever decide there's an instrument or some extra music that when you came back and you went, oh, I don't remember that, get that piece in there not not sneaking from the listeners but something an afterthought that he had while you were out of the room and come back in or really he stayed with just vocals it was just vocals so the vocals um would go on before the record was done of course he didn't wait until all the overdubs were done so um usually it would come at a time after we did the basic rhythm track bass and drums you have the chord changes and the melody in there and once you had a good, strong skeleton, that's when he would do his lead and all his backing vocals. And then 
that's the time he would start to open up and talk a little bit more. So I'd come back into the room. Vocals are now done. Now we can blast it through the speakers. And now we can do the fun part, which is the ornamentation. Now we can do all the bells and whistles and the things that turn a song into a record. We can add the finishing touches or any effects or just anything. At that point is when a record's going to turn the corner. And for him, it's going to turn the corner and either end up on his next album or someone's next album, or it's going to go into that vault. So that's kind of the critical stage when at this point, now as you're putting on the ornamentation, now you can hear what this is. Now you really know for sure where this record stands and whether or not it's worthy of your next uh, album, or sometimes it's more than worthy. It's, 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 it's brilliant, but it just doesn't fit with the theme of the next record. So Prince used to say, Throughout his career, he said, we don't make singles, we make albums. I have never known a successful artist who was less concerned with singles. He really paid so little attention to that. When we were in the studio, we were making albums. That was his joy. That's what he lived for. He was an album maker in the days of vinyl, of course. It's 34 minutes long. You got 17 minutes on one side and 17 on the other side. And that's your album, a 34-minute piece of music. So he loved sequencing albums. I loved doing that with him, too. That was, that was really, really fun. Is when you're putting the songs in order and you're finally listening to side A and and side B, and you're getting the experience of the listener, and you're imagining what are they going to think? What's it going to feel like? They're going to play, they're going to start with side A, they put on the first song, and it's going to play through, and then they're going to flip it over, and they're going to play the B side. What's this experience going to be like? Yeah. That was such a joy to do with him. Yeah, I can't, I can only imagine. Let's yeah. uh, go ahead, go ahead, Jeff. Well, well you mentioned uh, as far as listening making albums versus focusing on singles. So, and, and how many artists, whether they're, you know, single oriented or album oriented. And now you made me think something, knowing that you've worked with so many people since, and you know, everything that you've done the numerous times in your interviews, you've shared how spoiled you become, <laughs> you know, with you know, any engineer had become with working with Prince, you know, considering he'll tear through a song and, mm. You didn't have to do take after take after take. He kind of just, something came out and it just was right. And in your interviews, you would talk about needing with other artists, needing to wait all day for someone to get a part right and things like that and how mm. that could be frustrating. So I'm curious as to what is there, because I'm, I'm sure you've enjoyed many of the artists, but is there any particular artist that you really enjoyed that was kind of stand out to you? Hmm. Yeah, for different reasons. You know, it was it was amazing working with David Byrne for his creativity and his methodology. David knows how to make records, and uh, that was that was a wonderful experience. Working with Bare Naked Ladies was incredible because the guys were so smart and so funny and really good musicians. These guys can really play anything you suggest to them; they'll do. But the one that stands out the most to me in terms of overall what I gained from it would have to be Gaggy Ta. So Gaggy Ta, were, they were a duo. The Ta was Tommy Jordan, and the, the Gag was the great uh, producer Greg Kirsten. You've probably heard of Greg Kirsten. He's produced Adele and Foo Fighters and Beck and Paul McCartney and 
he's having great success these days as a producer. But when I knew Greg, he was uh, in his early 20s. He was the gag of gaggy So Tommy and Greg worked almost completely the opposite of, of the way Prince worked. So Prince, uh, whom I believe was what we call in neuroscience a hyper-creative, Prince's ideas just kept coming, 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 coming. And so Prince had to work fast, 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 fast to get all these songs done and recorded because the next song was 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 backing up in his brain. He had to get to the next song. So we did a lot of songs very quickly. Now, Tommy Jordan is also a hyper creative. And I, I say that knowing what I'm talking about because of all the people I ever worked with in the music business, I've only known two, Prince and Tommy Jordan. But Tommy's hyper creativity <laughs> manifested in the complete opposite way from Prince's. Tommy would never let a song go because the new ideas kept coming and coming and coming and coming. And, and Greg and I just learned, just listen to him. Because when he says, wait, and he's got another idea for yet another thing we could pile onto this record, he usually knows what he's talking about. It's usually something good. So uh, Tommy and Greg taught me more about music per se than any other musicians I've ever worked with. And Prince taught me more about the music business and success in this business, certainly than any other artist I ever worked with. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I love the fact that we, you know, sharing so many stories about Prince here, because obviously we have rabid purple masses here. But uh, I really dug deep into your work and uh, went down some rabbit holes with you on Discogs, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Mm -hmm. With that, but uh, there are some things you did that I was not aware of, and that I haven't heard you talk about, and I, I, I want to remedy that now. Mainly, we're going to get back to the to the Prince thing. Uh, Jeff, I'm hearing a little bit of that echo again. Um, yeah. Anyways, I want to make sure that. Uh, anyway, but I want to make sure that we are um, mainly because some of this might be incorrect. But I but I have to know. One of my favorite albums of the '90s was Fishbone's "Reality of My Surroundings." Uh, that album is just ska perfection. I mean, it's it's one of the greatest albums ever, and you are listed on the background vocals. Is that true or false? And if it's true, please tell me that story. <laughs> it could be true. I I don't remember. So the only connection I have with Fishbone that I'm aware of is um, the, the great trombonist John McKnight also played for Gagita. And I remember working at Sunset Sound with Gagita, and we were in Studio 3, and the, the, there's a courtyard at Sunset Sound in Los Angeles, and two studios two and three uh, both empty out into that courtyard. So Fishbone was in two, and I was with my client in three. And it sometimes happens in the studio where you just need a, you need gang vocals. You need group, a group of people to sing. So uh, you'll just go to the next door studio and say, anybody free? Can anybody come in and sing on this record? So that could very well have happened. Uh, we would folks do that for one another all the time. It was good of them to credit me. Yeah, that's, that's really nice. That's, I, I saw that. that was, my mind was blown. I was like, oh, my gosh, that's incredible. Mm. Um, now, I was born in 68. So for those of us who grew up as teens in high school in the 80s, you could not avoid violent femmes. Uh, a lot of people don't know who Violent Femmes are, but in, you know, let me go on. I got my Sarah in this. Uh, and, uh, but anyways, as part of my digging, I also found out 
and if it's true or not, that you did some kind of instrumentation on a Violent Femmes record? I did. Yeah, I did work with them. So um, I, it was early in my my career as an independent record maker. I had left Prince. I'd left Minnesota. I was back in Los Angeles. And I had a manager and a, the manager put me together with the great producer, Michael Beinhorn. So Michael was just starting his career as a producer. I was just starting my career as an independent engineer. And the record that we uh, were chosen to work on was this record called Debacle by Violent Femmes. And I'm laughing because it was a difficult record. It was difficult. Gordon Gano, a lead singer, main songwriter of Violent Femmes, is brilliant. And a lot of brilliant people are... Uh, well, they're 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 rare birds, and when you're in the studio with some of these rare birds, they they can be full of surprises. They can be very unpredictable. They can have strange peccadilloes. And Gordon had a had a heavy dose of all that. But we did we did work together, and um, although it wasn't the the music wasn't as Prince would have put it, the street I lived on. I didn't have a natural affinity for the music they were making. It wasn't my street, but I respected the hell out of them. They were fantastic guys. It was interesting because with that band, they didn't have a full drum kit. It was just a snare drum. So it was bass, snare drum, and then whatever Gordon was playing, which was usually guitar. Hmm. Wow. That's, I mean, and I think it's fantastic. <laughs> Anyways, uh, also, again, Again, being a, a teen in the 80s, David Byrne, which you've already mentioned, uh, I love Talking Heads. I mean, he seems mm. like one of those mastermind geniuses that would be very intimidating to work for. Yes. But uh, his demeanor also seems like he would be very accommodating and, and patient also. What's it like working with a guy like David Byrne? Oh, you gotta love David Byrne. So, of course, I was a huge Talking Heads fan as well. Um He's, he's, he's he, as great as he is and as much praise as, his, as he has received and awards and things, he's underrated. The guy's a brilliant musician. Yeah. So what happened was uh, David had signed up another producer engineer team, a duo, to produce his record that was ultimately titled David Byrne. And they were in New York. They had studio time booked. They were working together for a week. And as sometimes happens, you just realize you're incompatible. Like your musical ideas don't gel together. And the record that you find yourself making is not the record you wanted to make. So David let that producer and engineer team go. And um, I got a phone call on a Sunday night from my manager at that time. I was in Los Angeles. And he said, how would you like to uh, get on a plane tonight and go to New York and work with David Byrne? And I had to I had to say yes immediately. I couldn't stop and think about it. I, yes, yeah, get me that ticket. I'm on my way to the airport. Let me pack my bag and off I go. So I'm on the plane and I'm flying from LA to New York and I'm thinking, oh no, what have I done? I said yes to producing and engineering David Byrne. Like, what am I gonna say to David Byrne? And finally, finally, before the plane landed, I figured out here's what you're gonna say. You're going to tell him what you think. That's why he's hiring you. He's asking you, what does it sound like to you? What do you think? And I'm going to tell him, okay, I can do that. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> and, and, and it ended up being a really, really good time. The other co-producer was Arto Lindsay, uh, kind of a New York avant-garde artist. And I was engineering and co-producing as well. And, and together we had some great musicians in the studio. And one of the first things you learn about David Byrne 
He's really, really funny. He's got a great sense of humor. Really funny. He really likes to laugh. He also has, I mentioned earlier, this methodology. He's got a strong work ethic. Prince did as well. He 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 likes to plan his work days. He likes to know when we're starting. He likes to know what time we're going home. He's 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 a busy man. So I remember one morning in the studio, we're at Clinton Recorders in New York, and I always traveled at that time with my little dog, Gina, little Boston Terrier, and I would come to the studio in the morning, get there early, and set up Gina and get her all ready to go and get ready for the day. So David came in, and he poured himself a cup of coffee, and I had a, a, a little bowl of Gina's kibble sitting on the kitchen counter, and uh, I heard David say, what is this? <laughs> I turned around, and David was eating the kibble. <laughs> Oh, no. He thought it was some kind of breakfast treat because I had just put the kibble in the bowl and I had just set it on the counter and I turned around for something else. And David came in and he poured a coffee and he's eating this dog kibble. Oh, no. <laughs> Didn't realize what it was. And I had to say, it's the dog's kibble. <laughs> and he laughed so hard. Whenever things were funny, David was the first guy to laugh. Uh, I just ad admire the hell out of him, and it was a it was a true joy to work with that man. Oh my God, that's it's <laughs> yeah yeah. Oh, so I'm so sorry. I I thought I had put my phone on. Do not no, disturb. No, per perfectly fine, but um, that's actually funny. Uh, another one. We're and don't worry, Prince fans. We're going to get back to the to the Prince thing. Just just relax, but because I I really. It's not every day that you have the legendary Dr. Susan Rogers in the house right exactly. now to ask all these amazing questions. And I just, I have to count. We're, we're going to get to some print stuff. Trust me. You're going to just stay for the ride. You're fine. Bare Naked Ladies, you had mentioned this before. Many don't know this, but you were part of the magic behind the, the board on their mm. unit one week. It's been one week since you're looking at me. Uh, anyways, after working with Prince, the hit factory, did you feel like that radio, that huge radio hit for them was like further validation for you uh, about your, your prowess as an engineer? I mean, like I can create hits outside of Paisley Park. Hmm. Yeah. I, my confidence was growing throughout the nineties, especially thanks to how much I learned. So when I left Prince, I knew how Prince made records. And uh, Jeff, you said something earlier about this, which is very, very true. Prince's engineer in the, in the 2000s, uh, Dylan Dresdow said, you had to unlearn Prince because Prince was so unusual as a record maker. So when I left Prince in 87, I knew Prince's way of mixing, Prince's way of making records. And I quickly found out in the late 80s that that doesn't apply. You can't apply those techniques to everyone else's music because not everyone else has the same arrangement skills or the same sensibility when making records. So it took me a while to learn how other people make records. The the uh, growth in my confidence really happened making two records back to back with Gagita because they taught me they taught me so much about what music is and how it works. And then I made records with other people that um didn't sell a lot but got a lot of critical praise and that I'm just hugely proud of. In particular a record by Jeff Beck, 
Oh, Jeff Beck. Nice to meet Jeff Beck. I meant Jeff Black. I never made a record with Jeff Beck. Jeff Black, a wonderful record called Birmingham Road. And uh, Nil Lada, uh, uh, my first child with uh, Nil Lada, was just an amazing record. I love that so much. And uh, a Robin Ford record. So I knew I had the skills. So you don't necessarily need a hit to, to prove that to yourself. Um, hits are going to happen based on many, many factors beyond your control. There's, it's, you know, it's the timing and it's, it's the management and it's the record label and it's how well the band does on tour and it's radio. There's just so many factors that go into a hit, but having one is great, but not having one doesn't necessarily mean you didn't do your job well. Um, I think for all of us who who, who make records, it's, it's always a, a long, slow climb. Oh, a life in the arts is a life in problem solving. Yeah, the longer you've fun. been in the arts, the, the more problems you know how to solve. You'll spend your whole career in the arts and you'll never know how to solve all of them. I'll, I'll tell you a quick aside and I'll let you ask another question. But um, the, the legendary man, the great producer, Phil Ramone, known mm. for his work, of course, with John Lennon and Billy Joel and all these great artists. I had the chance to mix a record for Phil Ramone. I was maybe 35 or so, and he was 57 at that time. We were at the Village Recorders in L.A. And I, I, was, still, I was still at that stage where I did not feel mastery over my craft. And, and uh, there were still problems that were so really hard to solve in mixing and engineering. So I got my courage, and I asked Phil one day in the studio, I said, Phil, can you tell me at what age did the record making start to get easy for you? And he just looked at me and he said, not yet. <laughs> I came to discover that that was true for all of us. It doesn't get easy. It won't get easy because you're always going to be encountering problems you've never seen before. It's a, it's a, it's a life in problem solving. Yeah. I think that's, that's the case at any time a spotlight's on you. I mean, I, I occasionally will DJ and I've, I've done, I've done hundreds of shows, but it seems like no matter what happens, <laughs> when you first have to start it's like it's just that feeling of like okay it's i, I think it's just a performing thing i mean um uh, i don't know it's just a spotlight scenario yeah you know no, I get that. one of the things that we had said was you know, early before we before we did this interview is that i asked some of the uh funkatopians to submit their questions any questions that they wanted to ask you and and i am actually watching i see that facebook is is live again now so we are going to be looking at some of these questions that are popping up Right. Um, if we don't get to your question, don't be offended. We got a lot that we want to go through. So I want to make sure that we kind of get to everybody as possible. But uh, here are some of the questions. Well, here's one of the questions that uh, came up. Funkatopian, now you may have answered this already. Funkatopian Karina Turnbull said that in a previous podcast, you had mentioned that you had only worked with or knew of one other artist that was as prolific as Prince. Can you share who you were referring to? That was Tommy Jordan. That was Tommy Jordan. I, I've never known anyone who was such a fountain of nonstop creativity. In fact, it was Tommy Jordan who named the book. So um, the, the book is titled This Is What It Sounds Like. And it's actually, it's a Prince reference, but it's from When Doves Cry. This is what it sounds cry. like when doves cry. So um, Yeah, I was thinking uh, later. This is what it feels like is immediately what uh, I yeah. yeah, no, this is, and, and I had been struggling, struggling, struggling to come up with a title for the book. I was thinking of 
something to do with listening, something to do with love and listening or something. And I was out with Tommy. We were at Princeton with his dad. Tommy stepped away for a minute and he came back and said to the table, I got it. This is what it sounds like. Tommy's always got it. He all he's, he, he always be counted on to have an idea. That is extremely rare. Now, for most of us, if you want to know a little bit about the neuroscience of it, for most of us, we uh, creativity starts with daydreaming and mind wandering. So we yep. need, artists need their private time. They need their daydreaming, mind-wandering time. A lot of artists are said to have their heads in the clouds. Yeah, they do. They have their heads in the clouds because that's where those ideas come from, that just spacing out. Anyway, it, it activates some circuits that allow a new thought, a brand new thought to you to just kind of suddenly appear. When that new thought appears, we hang on it, we hang on it, we hang on it, like, yeah, that's cool. And there are a couple of circuits in the brain that open up and allow that pattern of neural activity to persist. And it doesn't, sometimes it's going to fly out of your head, but if you're lucky, it stays. And then you go, yeah, that's cool. I'm going to do that. I'm going to write that. I'm going to make that. And that's when those creativity circuits shut. They, they, they shut down and you move from art to craft. Art is original thought. Craft is building the thing you just thought of. So you go, yeah, yeah, I've got an idea. I've got an idea. And you grab your pen or you grab your guitar, or your keyboard or whatever it is. And you start writing and you start creating. And now you're, you're relying on your craft. And then you go back and you try to open up those circuits again. Now I need something here. And you switch back and forth between art and craft. Now, there are some folks, the folks that we label hyper-creative, who actually have um, something called reduced inhibition in the brain circuits responsible for creativity, which means their creativity is like a fire hose, and it simply doesn't shut off. Yeah. If they should be someone like Prince, who has tremendous craft, they can make anything that they can imagine in their heads. When I worked for him, the only thing Prince didn't do was play horn. He uh, had Eric Leeds for saxophone. But other than that, if he could think of it, Prince wanted to be able to, to do it himself. And to answer the, the viewer's question, Tommy Jordan is similar, multi-instrumentalist. And um, as I said earlier, never stops thinking of new ideas. He's written thousands of songs over his lifetime. He's not prolific like Prince in the sense that he doesn't spend a lot of time recording and releasing his songs, but I've never known anyone more creative. Wow. Um, kind of getting swaying back into, into the Prince stuff or Prince related stuff, actually uh, a little bit of a, a side branch, Wendy and Lisa's fruit at the bottom. But did you work yes. on the whole album or just specific songs? It was the whole thing. Yeah. So, and this is kind of uh, what's interesting with fruit on the bottom for me, uh, right at the bottom is this is, I, I believe I have my timelines correct. This is on the tail end of them being fired from Prince and the revolution right before sign of the times, which by the way, you know, they, for those that don't know, Wendy and Lisa were very heavily involved in writing a lot of material on that album. And, and Prince releases the album and lo and behold, songs that they wrote solely like colors and visions are, are gone. And all the work that they helped him 
with, they didn't get any credit at all. So, I mean, not even a thank you in the liner notes. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But, you know, when you're working on this album with them, did you get a sense quietly or even verbally that they definitely felt like they had something to prove here? I mean, as if to say, we are excellent songwriters and this album will showcase what we can do. Yeah, I think that's always true. And I think that's true for every artist. Um, when I when I worked with them on Fruit at the Bottom, there was there were those old wounds. There was a lot of pain there. Um, because as the saying goes, where there's pain, there has been love, because those relationships for all three of us, those our relationships with Prince had been really intense and long lasting. And there was genuine love there. Lisa had joined Prince, I think think in 1980 she'd been with him a long time they'd been through a lot wendy joined when she was young and impressionable she had her 18th birthday when she was working for prince so uh he was the prince experience was the as far as wendy knew the seminal and perhaps even the biggest professional opportunity she would ever have you know you don't know what the future holds for you so she was 23 years old when she left prince and, and i remember her saying Maybe that was the highlight of my career. I'm 23 years old. So there was, there was, there was pain and a little bit of confusion. And there was, um, yeah, certainly a sense that, well, now the one, the good thing that came from this is now it's our chance. Now we can show what we're capable of doing. And uh, musically, you know, they're, they're different musicians than, than who Prince than the, than the musician Prince was. They have, they have a different background. They have different sensibilities. They're brilliant, brilliant musicians. I can't listen to Lisa play, play piano without just having tears running down. It's, it's, so, yeah, it's, it's so, so incredible. And Wendy will just blow you away with, with what she knows. So yeah, it, it was their chance. Now they had uh, all these musical strengths. It took them time to learn how to package that, how to, how to be commercially viable artists. Uh, would they be the kinds of artists who would have top 10 singles? It didn't seem likely. Of course, their label wants them to try to do that. But no, they're, they're, they're as we would say, musicians, musicians, and they're going to make art that is um, not probably not going to appear on the billboard top 10 charts, but is, is going to appear on the smaller charts because of the style of art that they make. Yeah. I I would, and not to say that I would typically ever disagree with you, but I, I feel like fruit at the bottom was packed full of hits. I I mean, if, if it had, I mean, are you my baby? The, The title track, I mean, everything, I would love to get them on the show one time because, mm. I, and when I do, I'm going to get every single one. I have every single one of their CDs, Girl Brothers, everything. I have everything. I'm going to spread it out everywhere. I, I loved everything that they did because there was so much. The, the songwriting skills that they had uh, were just. It's. Yeah, oh, I, they're so amazing! But their 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 work at that time wasn't a perfect fit for R and B radio. And remember R&B radio at this time. I mean, there was, there was, uh, there were producers who were dominating R&B radio and the Wendy and Lisa sound wasn't a perfect fit for that, nor was it a perfect fit for pop radio either. Um, That's always a factor. 
Yeah, it's well, such a shame. They were because... a perfect fit for musicians that love mm-hmm. artists. Uh, so I, they were I, definitely the musician's musician. I love them a lot. <laughs> Likewise. Yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, did you work on Eroica? I did. Yeah, I, I brought in, I'd introduced them to my mentor, production mentor, Tony Berg. And uh, Tony Tony came in and worked with us as well on that record and helped uh-huh. elevate that record to a higher level. Crack, crack in the pavement, skeleton key. Why wait mm-hmm. for heaven? Yeah. Forget it. I love that song, Mother of Pearl. I love oh, yeah. that. Great song too, yeah. Yeah, so beautiful. So, uh, not, we could have a little bit of a Wendy and Lisa love fest here. Mm-hmm. I, I would be right. all about it. But um, And we just kind of did. Uh, while you don't typically mention them in your bios, you know, uh, I mentioned this at the top. For those of you just joining us, you, you are listening to our interview with the amazing Dr. Susan Rogers. Uh, Prince's engineer from 1983 to 1987, worked on his biggest albums, you know, Purple Rain, Parade, Around the World in the Day, Sign of the Times, and all that stuff in between. Uh, but also some of the things that you don't mention in uh, your your bios, for whatever reason, you know, some of the Prince-affiliated material um, that I mentioned at the top, like uh, Tevin Campbell, Mavis, Mavis Staples, um, Wendy and Lisa, obviously we just talked about that. Madhouse albums, Jill Jones, Andre Simone, Sheila E, The Family, Sue Ann, Maserati, mm-hmm. Eric Leeds, Candy Dolphin, Sheena Easton. Oh, and I gotta play this clip. Yo, Kim, check out this. Susan, turn the guitar up a little bit. <laughs> and of course, Jesse Johnson. Jesse Johnson's Every Shade of Love album. Um, yeah, I got to put that in there. You got to love having a shout out. You got to have, yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, you were neck deep in all of it. I mean, yeah. once I even say that, you know, you, I, and I kind of feel this way too, that you kind of helped Prince establish the sound of the eighties. Not, I mean, not just musically, obviously he was the one that was doing that, but it was something in the way that you mixed. And we're going to talk about this for a second, but, um, I, do you feel like, you you do yourself downplay your involvement in that whole sound i don't know it's hard to tell you know you you can't see yourself you need a mirror in order to see yourself and um uh, other people can see you just fine but you need a little bit of technology uh, a, a little bit of help in order to see yourself and i i think I think uh, I have a hard time understanding what my contribution was. I'd like to respond to something you said about the bio, and then I'll get back to uh, answering this question. Um, In bios, usually what's most important uh, for record makers is your production credits unless you're known exclusively as a mixer or an engineer. So, so many of those artists that you mentioned, I worked with as an engineer or mixer. Um, So I I try to lean heavily on my production credits. If it's just a short bio, because as a producer, that's where I'm going to, excuse me. (coughs) That's where my sonic signature is going to be the most evident. I would have had the most control. So now to answer the, the question, um, record makers all have a sonic signature uh, for an engineer, for a mixer, you're pushing sound around to make it sound the way you like it to sound. All of us have ears that are ever so slightly different. 
when I was with Prince, I started with him as an audio technician. I wasn't an engineer. So I learned his ear. He taught me how he liked the snare drum to sound, how he wanted the hi-hat to sound, the effects they wanted, he wanted on the vocal. When he called for big reverb, what that was. So I learned Prince's ear. Then I had to learn when to use Prince's ear working with other artists and when to, and when I couldn't, and, and when I couldn't, I had no choice. I had to use my own ear and hope that it would be good as all record makers have to do. So over, over the years, my ear developed and, and I, I, I eventually found a sonic signature that personally I liked. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to make art that you like as a producer, instead of pushing sound around, um, you're pushing performances around in a sense, you're listening to performers on the other side of that glass and you're deciding, is this going to work or isn't it going to work? You're, you're arranging and you're coming up with parts. I, I, uh, I was just in New York last week and I saw Ed Robertson from Bare Naked Ladies. I hadn't seen him in years and he reminded me of something that I had forgotten about. So uh, he, played, he, he played the demo of One Week and uh, it was an acoustic guitar based demo and he had used a little drum machine loop on there. And he remembers clear as a bell me saying, that drum pattern is not cool. <laughs> and he said it was an epiphany. I don't remember saying it, but it's something I would say. He said a light bulb went off and he realized, yeah, that's right. It's not cool. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> I think it was some, so it was probably some little hip hop thing, which was not cool, not cool. <laughs> so we had to do, we had to do a straighter drum rhythm, but yeah, that, that's, that's, you grow into your sonic signature. You learn from your mistakes and you so, learn what will work in some contexts and not in others. You know, so I, for you, ultimately you developed an ear and then you redeveloped your ear. Mm, yeah, I developed a prince's ear right. and then I, I, I developed my own. Wow. You know, and this is not, you, you mentioned sonic signatures and which I, I'd never heard that term before. That's, is that a common term? Uh, fairly common record makers use it. Okay. And this is not a knock, but for me, um, you know, we talked a little bit about Jesse Johnson's every shade of love and, you know, a lot of Jesse Johnson's production work back in the eighties, he had a, you know, and what he did for other artists had a very specific sonic signature. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I loved Jesse Johnson. Let's be real clear. Mm -hmm. I was a, here, let me show you how obsessed with Jesse Johnson I was. You guys ready for this? All right, everybody ready? For, I, I'm, I apologize if you're on the funked up app because this is a visual thing. This is how obsessed I was with Jesse. Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, I am showing a picture of me circa 1980. I don't even know what it was. Uh, probably 85, 86. And uh, this is on the heels of Jesse Johnson's review when he had, yeah. was wearing the pink suit. pink suit. And I have no idea where I even got the pink suit. Uh, but I had the accompanying pink tie and the whole thing. Of course, that's my grandmother who's no longer with us uh, sitting there smoking a cigarette. So 80s. But mm -hmm. I was obsessed <laughs> with, and I think this is hilarious. This is, uh, yeah. Anyways, I was obsessed with Jesse Johnson. And I think one of the things that's funny is that, you know, when he did production work, you could always, I actually showed that picture to Jesse Johnson just so we're clear. And he laughed his butt off. He, I, I think it was kind of part laughing and part feeling sorry for me. <laughs> but uh, when he did production work, you could always tell that it was 
it was Jesse, mainly because of that signature chunky rhythm guitar. Here is a sample of that. Mm. Do you think it's real or true? That that is that is that signature sonic that chunky rhythm yes. guitar that he kind of that was his sonic signature. Mm-hmm. That's a clip from tomorrow in the scenes blueberry gossip that Jesse was on. That that exact rhythm guitar riff was on a lot of tracks that he touched. Mm. And when you heard it, you were like, Jesse, nothing wrong right. with it, but mm-hmm. very identifiable. And, you know, speaking of Jesse, since we're here real quick, you work with Jesse Johnson on Every Shade of Love. Mm. And, and there was definitely a rival there, obviously, going on between Jesse and Prince. You know, some spoken, some unspoken. Some would say, oh, no, I'm not worried about him and the vice versa and whatever, whatever. Do you remember anything ever specifically during that recording session where maybe Jesse was wanting to replicate something that Prince had done, maybe even the re- in the recording, the way that he you recorded or mixed um, or vice versa. Hmm. So on the surface, Jesse wanted to be his own artist, just as Jimmy and Terry did. And just as Des Dickerson and, and Andre Simone did, um, they all, they all wanted to, uh, Wendy and Lisa as well. Um, but Prince cast a giant, giant shadow. So for all of Prince's protégés, they're starting their careers in this shadow and they're trying to move over into the light. So how do you do that? And um, if you're going to come up with your own sound, um, you, you can't avoid the fact that his sound just happens to be the most popular sound of the day. So how far away from that do you want to go? If you're someone like uh, Wendy Melvoin, Lisa Coleman, you you had a sound before you joined Prince. So you're just going to carry on with where you were. But for other musicians who uh, really developed their sound in Prince's shadow, I think it was it was it was really a struggle to figure out just how much are you going to change your sensibility so that you don't sound like you're copying him and you sound like you're your own artist. If you just happen to enjoy the same things that he enjoys, the same guitar sound, the same snare sound, if you happen to enjoy those things, well, gosh, it's sad because you're going to be accused of imitating him when maybe it just was, you know, homologous evolution, I suppose. Um, well, were you were you ever caught up in that to where um, while they were trying to I don't know find stand out or come out from under that shadow did they ever anyone ever come to you with what do you think kind of questions Oh definitely think? definitely um I think the idea when working with Jesse and and working with other artists um, maybe who uh, had been heavily influenced by Prince, the idea was to just keep those blinders on and just stay focused on whatever we can find that's going to be good, that we're going to like, and and is going to establish that this artist is not Prince, nor is, is this artist trying to be Prince. There were other artists that you'd hear on the radio who definitely sounded like Prince imitators, but we can't accuse Jimmy and Terry or Jesse or Andre of, of being that. They were artists in their own right. So no, I don't think you you don't think about it much. What what Jesse and I talked about a lot is the same thing, um, same conversations I had with Wendy and Lisa. Oh, there's a lot of emotional unpacking that has to happen. I mean, this working with Prince was just so extraordinary. I suppose it would be like being an astronaut 
and you've just been on the International Space Station for four years, and now you're back on Earth. And you do have to kind of say, what was that? Like, what was that? The, the people that Prince had working for him, they started with him when they were young and pretty much unknown. So you went from unknown to huge. And right. now you've just been put back down on earth. Who are you? Are you unknown again? Are you huge? Who are you? We, we all had to do that sort of uh, delayed invention of ourselves and finding ourselves. All of us took a little bit of time, if I'm being honest, to, to find who we were after Prince. That. Mm. Yeah, because as they start to grow again, they're finding that the fans that they are getting are residual from mm -hmm. Prince. Not Often. they don't feel like their own fans yet. You know, I, I would think until they finally realize, yeah, you are somebody. <laughs> you, yeah. you are great. It takes a little minute and it can be done. I think we all did it successfully, Absolutely. but uh, it takes it takes a, a psychological rebuilding of your image of yourself and your importance to the field. No one wants to be the person who just is uh, reliving their glory days and going around saying, remember me? I used to work for Prince. I used to be the Prince's, I don't know, keyboard player, guitar player, drummer. I was great. Remember, you liked that. So, yeah, let me just keep doing that. I, you, no one wants to be that. What you want to be is is uh, you want to discover yourself and be your own artist independently of, of him. Mm. Well, we only had a couple more questions regarding production from Funkatopian. So let's go ahead and get those out of the way so we can start hammering away some of these Prince questions here. Not that some of these aren't, they're all Prince related pretty much, but uh, Funkatopian Peter Castle asked, what were the regular vocal chain and regular guitar chains for Prince's recordings that you worked on? You got it. Um, okay, so the um, mic preamps that Prince liked were custom designed by a fellow named Frank Demidio. And uh, Frank Demidio built the recording console that's at Sunset Sound in Studio 3 that's still there. And uh, Prince had him build a, a console, especially for him, which is still there today in Paisley Park. Prior to Prince working on that console, uh, a standard API mic preamp was the mic preamp that came closest to Frank Demidio. So an API mic preamp, um, that's, a, that's a nice discrete circuit preamp, the older ones anyway, and it's got a lot of gain. Then after you come out of the preamp, uh, for Prince, because he was an expert singer, by the time I worked with him, he knew how to ride the microphone. The experts don't need a lot of compression. Any of you out there who are young recording engineers, remember that. If, if you're working with a, a beginning artist, use a compressor on the vocal. But if you're working with an experienced artist like Prince, you don't need a compressor, you need a limiter. So the Telefunken LA-2A limiter was fine for him because he knew how to ride the mic to get the, uh, the presence or the distance that he wanted. So those two things would give you enough gain to get to uh, the tape machine back in those days when uh, we had bones in our hair, you know, and we dressed like Wilma Flintstone and we had the dinosaur out in the parking lot. Back in those days, uh, you'd feed it into the tape machine. Now the tape machine, tape recording is different from digital recording analog recording 
talk about a sonic signature, adds distortion byproducts. It adds harmonic distortion to the signal. So what comes out of the machine is different from what went in. And we liked it. <laughs> we liked it. It boosted certain frequencies. It cut others. It was warm. It was rich. So we come back off the tape machine. And then uh, the reverb that he liked at Sunset Sound, we had an echo chamber. We could use the natural echo chamber. But uh, if you weren't at Sunset, if you were at Paisley or somewhere else, um, an EMT plate reverb was always nice. The Lexicon, uh, for those who are audio engineers, Lexicon made the great 480L. And before that, it was the 240L. And for me, I always dialed up for him uh, a, a kind of a, a medium room. Uh, a large chamber was 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 okay if you added some pre-delay uh, onto that onto that patch. Yeah, kind of customize his reverb to get it warm and soft the way he liked it. But that was his vocal chain. Now the guitar chain. Let's take the the number one recording guitar from the eighties for him was that Telecaster copy the Honer guitar. Looks like a Telecaster. It was made by Honer, and he liked in those days eleven gauge strings, thick thick strings, strong mm. fingers, you know, and he could bend those notes. I heard that later in life he had to switch to the, the thinner gauge because, you know, you start to get a little bit of arthritis and stiffness in your fingers. But when I worked for him, it was the 11 gauge strings. So you take that guitar and uh, he would always run it through. Um, well, he loved his, you, you know it well, I think his Roland Bost effects pedals. Yeah. Those effects pedals were his secret ingredient. He needed that on his guitar, on his keyboards, certainly on the LM1 drum machine that he used. The output of that LM1 drum machine would run through this effects pedals with these Roland Boss foot pedals, and he could mix and match them. So he liked to have the flanger, the purple flanger. He had that, he used that a lot. And he liked the chorus, and he liked the um, heavy metal pedal that was yellow there was a distortion one that was orange he liked that there was delays in there and you you could put i think six of them in the uh in the case plus a little power supply so you take your guitar you run it through those effects pedals you can bypass them if you don't want it the output of that i always used a countryman direct box i liked the countryman on his guitar still love the countryman to this day I didn't want a transformer direct box because a transformer is going to add some distortion byproducts you didn't need for his guitar. I wanted a clean sound. So I would use the Countryman and again, feed it into the uh, tape machine. If it was going to be amplified, if his guitar was going to go through an amp and have distortion, it he always used the same guitar amp. It was a Mesa Boogie head and a bag-end cabinet, and that was just his go-to. Now, the funny thing uh, about Prince is sometimes people who don't know him that well say, he was always experimenting, and I have to correct them and say, no, he wasn't. He was not experimenting at all, because experimentation takes time. The thing that Prince loved more than anything is to walk into the studio and have all of his familiar stuff set up and routed and ready to go. If he could walk in and his drums are ready, whether it's acoustic drums or this LM1 drum machine, his bass is tuned, sitting there, ready to go. His guitars are ready. Everything is routed. Everything's mic'd. Everything's ready to record. He was happy. 
he didn't want to experiment because that takes time and that pulls resources away from the original thinking he was doing of, of writing and coming up with arrangements and parts. You mixing engineers need to stop and smoke a cigarette now, what I imagine. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. Uh, yeah, that is going to be a clip for sure that uh, there people are going to revisit over and over and over again. Absolutely. First thing I'm going to do when we're when we're done is set up my chain because I have some of, right. a lot of those pedals. Yeah, you, you want those pedals. You want for your vocal. Well, the vocal mic would either be... Um, the Neumann, the tube U47. For those who have to ask, you cannot afford it. Yeah, can't. <laughs> no. You cannot afford it because they're 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 ridiculously expensive now because they're quite old. These old tube mics. Uh, when we were at rehearsal, though, he went in totally in the opposite direction because we did a lot of recording at rehearsal. A lot of the Around the World in a Day album was recorded at rehearsal through a horrible signal chain, for the most part. Um, and he'd use that Sennheiser stage mic. I want to say that the model number was the D330. I don't remember the exact model number, but the one that you'd see him with uh, in videos on stage uh, through Purple Rain, Sign of the Times. He used that in the studio. Hmm. My wow. favorite mic, my Sennheiser. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's my favorite mic. It's a good uh, mic. So uh, Pamela Weiss asks, uh, can you please describe the final process or a completed song with Prince in detail? For example, uh, would he listen to the final mix together with you and then say when it's done? And she says, I imagine that he could be a bit impulsive and pops possibly wouldn't want to replay it too much. Mm -hmm. uh, was there like a specific process that you guys had when you after you completed a final mix? Yeah, everything was a constant flow with him. Constant, constant, constant. He was always working, always working, always working. It was rare for us to put a tape aside and come back and mix it later. We did, of course. We did that plenty of times, but it, it wasn't as common. His usual way of working was he liked to be getting the sounds and getting the mix together as we were overdubbing. Um, after he'd finish a vocal he'd usually take a break and I'd have a chance to sit at the console and rebalance things and maybe play around and dial in some things. And then he'd come in, we'd add more ornamentation or he'd add more ornamentation. And um, then I, I could dial in sounds and certainly it's, it's well established that Prince was very hands-on. So he might ask me for, can you give me a long delay or can you give me a chorus or he knew what, what he wanted and he'd ask for it and I'd set it up for him, dial it in, do what I knew he liked and then the effects would be ready to go. I could sneak in some new things as well. When we had new gear, which we could afford, um, we had some new gear in the studio. And if I found a new patch that I thought he might like, I'd dial it up and I'd put it on something. If he liked it, it would stay. If he didn't, it would out of there quickly. So, <laughs> so he was deciding what he liked. But yeah, you're pushing, you're pushing sound around, and and and, and with the ultimate goal of deciding, uh, is this ready to go? Is this going to go on record, or is this going to go in the vault? And then we would print a mix when it was ready to go. We'd print a mix. Sometimes before we printed it, I used to enjoy this. Uh, he'd make a cassette, and we'd ride around in the car and listen to it in the car, and just figure out um, what's it need. Is it working? I, I, I enjoyed that with him. I remember tooling around in Los Angeles in this ivory-colored Rolls Royce he had with teak wood on the inside of it and this blue, a slate blue leather 
inside it was really a beautiful, beautiful car. Imagine Prince driving around Los Angeles in a convertible right. Rolls Royce, but he did. Uh, so that was nice. We also he also had his Thunderbird at home in Minnesota, and we'd ride around in that. So sometimes you ride around, listen to it, come back into the studio, make a few tweaks, and then print it and go to bed. But by the time we'd finished with the song. We're tired. I mean, we'd been in the studio for 20, 24 hours, often longer. So uh, you print it, you go to bed. He would listen to it when he woke up and decide whether or not um, he was going to revisit it at a later time or if it was fine, good to go. Mm. All right. So we have some unusual. This is such in, fantastic information. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people are geeking out. I know there's a lot of people wanting to put some follow-up questions here, but we're, we've got so much to get through. I want to make sure that you know we're respectful of your time. Uh, Funkatopian Arlene Oak asked that Prince was quite a believer in name-related coincidences. For example, uh, the quotation she uh, referenced a uh, quotation from a November 17th, 1996 New York Times thing. Uh, mentioned that marrying Maite seemed inevitable since her middle name was Janelle. His father's is John L. Her hmm. mother's name is Nell. He was born Prince Rogers Nelson, Nell's son. Uh, and he kind of said that at least half seriously. Um, so it begs the question, did Prince ever attach any significance to the fact that your last name is Rogers? I don't think he did. If he did, he didn't say anything. Maybe he thought so privately, but he didn't say anything. Yeah, it's well established that Prince was very spiritual. Mm. How, how I, I can't imagine how you could not be if, if you have all this great fortune fall in your lap when you're 18 years old and things are going so great, it's beyond your wildest dreams. Right. It would be quite natural to think that it must be fate or that someone is looking out for you or that the hand of providence is making sure that certain things happen in your life. I mean, it would be kind of terrifying to have all this happen before you're 25 years old. Yeah, you've, got, you've, you've got to have a coping mechanism that says that someone or something else is at least partially in control because this is kind of terrifying. So yeah. he, he did, you know, he was spiritual and he did put a lot of stock in, uh, in fate. Uh, I, when you started the question, I thought of, I remembered something that happened. This was kind of, it's really kind of cool. Um, we were in pre-production for doing the movie, uh, under the cherry moon. And he was writing the songs that would appear on the parade album. We were at home in Minnesota and we were at rehearsal in the, in the warehouse where we were in Minnesota. And, um, we suddenly picked up some RF radio frequencies and that didn't happen. It was extremely rare, but somehow I think through one of the wireless mics, the, maybe one of the guitar uh, transmitters or something, we picked up some radio and it was coming out through the speakers and dig this. The song that was playing on the radio was a song that went, Mary Hill used to hang out in Cherry Hill park playing songs way after dark. And Prince didn't know the song as well as I did. I don't think he had listened to the pop radio that I did in Southern California, but he 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 picked up some of the words. And he said, what is that? I said, don't you know that song? It's Cherry Hill Park. Mary Hill used to hang out in Cherry Hill Park. And I swear 
we both got goosebumps because Mary, of course, was the was the love interest in the movie, and it was under the cherry moon. Mary Hill and Cherry Hill Park. Why that song and not any other song? And it was, as I said, very, very rare, extremely rare to pick up RF in the studio. What are the odds that it would be that song? Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think I recall that song, but that's I mean, the coincidence of the lyrical content of that is just unbelievable. Yeah. And uh, the, the tagline was because Mary Hill was such a thrill after dark in Cherry Hill Park. It was a good single. If you look the look up the lyrics, it'll tell you. I don't remember who the artist is, but you can find it. It's a big hit. Wow. All right. Funkatopian Ben Petrick wanted to know, how did print, we talked about this before, how did Prince pay you? Was it hourly, per session, an annual oh. salary? And I guess, no. and, and an add-on to that question, I mean, did you have to start as an apprentice? I mean, did you just kind of just, you know, how, how did that all work? No, I didn't start as an apprentice. I, I was an experienced technician when I joined him. I'd been working in Los Angeles for five years, and I was I, I was no piker. I knew my stuff. <laughs> I, I, I was a, I was a competent technician. I mean, I was only yep. I'd only just turned twenty seven years old, but I'd been at it. I guess I'd been at it five or six years at this point. And I was good. I knew my stuff. I think apprentice uh, period is bad. Word. I think trial period probably was. Oh, yeah. yeah the, the, it's probably with Prince is always going to be a trial period. And if right, the right, trial right. period is, a, it's over when he decides that you're not the right one for the job. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I lasted. Um, yeah, I was his full-time employee. So I got a, a, a weekly salary. It might have been every two weeks or something like that. Just a weekly paycheck. I was well-paid, not millionaire kind of money, but it, uh, that's one thing about Prince. He paid well. He was always fair and decent to the people who worked for him. Uh, here's a story that your your listeners might enjoy. So my very first tour was the Purple Rain Tour, and I didn't know how it worked, but I was learning. I learned that there was a tour manager, and there's a lot of people on that tour. You've got everything from the truck drivers and the bus drivers to you've got the riggers, and you've got the lighting, and you've got the sound people. You've got costume. You've got hair. You've got makeup. You've got carpenters. You've got a safety guy. It's a lot of people. So the tour manager has to get all these people together for a big meeting before you go out on the road to tell you, here's what's up. And what they would do in the 80s is they would hand out to each crew member uh, a booklet. Well, it was more like a three ring binder. And in this binder would be your itinerary. Here are the cities we're going to. And there'd be information there. Here's the hotel you're staying in. Uh, here's where you get your laundry done. Here are the restaurants that are open 24 hours because you go to a new city and before the internet, you needed that information. It was really hard to get your laundry done while you were on tour. So you needed to know all these things. Here's where the banks are and here's where the post office is if you have to send something home. So they gave us these binders. And then the, the part of the story I wanted to share with you is that the tour manager was saying to this whole big room, we were at a Holiday Inn in one of their big meeting rooms, this whole crew, he said, I want to tell you something. Our boss is a very generous boss because he has decided that on this tour that goes for months, each and every crew member is going to get his or her own room. And that room just exploded in applause. And because I was new, I, I didn't know what's the big deal. And the uh, experienced crew members told me afterward, that's just not done. It's twice as much money. He's, I mean, they always have the crew guys double up. You always have to double up. You have to share a room. 
Right. We're gonna and and what Tom, I don't remember his last name, but Tom was our tour manager, and he said, Prince wants everyone to be happy. We're gonna be out for a long time. We've got to do a great job. You need to be happy. You need to be comfortable. So wow. that's that's the kind of person he was. He did not take his money and buy airplanes or villas in Tuscany or, or things like that. I mean, later on, he splurged on that Rolls Royce, but he put his money back into his art and into his work. Um, he didn't scrimp on on his tools. He didn't scrimp on the people who helped him keep that train running at that at that high clip. Man, that's, so that's, that's incredibly generous <laughs> for sure. Mm. I, I've heard, I, I always do the numbers. I'm one of these guys that goes into a concert and I look at the staff and everything that's running and I start doing numbers in my head. Well, he's got to be making this, got to be making this. And I'm looking at the seats and doing math in my head. Mm. I, I don't know why I do that. I think other people do that too. But um, you indicate in your book, uh, which for the, again, for those just joining us, we're talking to Dr. Susan Rogers, uh, and she's got a brand new book out. This is what it sounds like. You need to pick up this book. Obviously, um, the green screens, uh, activity on that still not working, but, uh, anyways, in the book, you mentioned that Prince had a studio policy that he referred to as no non-combatants. What it's, can you explain what that means? Yeah, that was just something he would say when he wanted uh, Alan Leeds or someone who was uh, his operations manager. Sometimes it would be his, his career manager, Steve Farnoli, when he wanted the room cleared. And that might happen on a movie set or a video set. Um, no non-combatants meant, I don't want anyone in this room who isn't working. I don't want anyone who's just who's just observing. Um, you know, Prince was intensely private. He, he needed that personal headspace in order to work. So uh, in the recording studio, that was the norm, no non-combatants. That's, you, you wouldn't have visitors in the recording studio, at least with the style of music that, that I worked on, the alternative indie and funk and dance stuff. That changed a bit culturally when uh, hip hop was introduced because in in hip hop sessions, I've I haven't done them, but I know about them. Hip hop sessions would be more inclined to bring visitors into the studio. You're bringing your inspiration into your room. It could be guys you know, or women you know, or dogs you know. You, you bring those pit bulls into the studio, <laughs> but you're bringing you're bringing your inspiration into the studio with you. Uh, as you as you work, but for other styles of music, traditionally that was that simply wasn't done. People brought pit bulls into the studio. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, all kinds of stuff. I, I like seeing a dog in the studio. <laughs> oh yeah, I do too. I don't remember seeing lots of pictures of that. Mm -hmm. All right, let's talk about the vault for a second. Um, you are the originator of Prince's fabled vault, um, and there does seem to be a division among his fans about what ultimately Prince's vision was for the material in that vault. I mean, and ultimately, I'm not to keep using that word, but mm. if I'm wrong, the vault was simply a necessity, mainly because his output was just like nonstop. And it, it, it had to be created in order to keep a running library of his staggering output that you kept you referred to a, a few mm. times here, just to have avoid having to go back and forth to the various studios and other locales that the sound recordings resided in or whatever. Is that a fair assessment of why the vault started? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I do take credit for starting the vault because I, I remember my thinking and and I remember my procedure and well, I just did it. I remembered the problem I was trying to solve. When I first came to work for him, he would occasionally ask me for a tape, and he'd ask me for tapes, obviously of songs that hadn't been released yet. That's why he wanted the tape. It was stuff to work on. So I didn't know these titles. He might mention a title, and I think. Oh, where am I going to find this tape? And then I learned sometimes I had to say to him, um, I can't get that tape because apparently it's not here. So I needed to know right away, where's all his stuff? And there were tapes in his house. There were tapes at the warehouse. There, 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 were, there were tapes uh, out at Sunset Sound and at other local Minneapolis recording studios from his early days. There were uh, tapes in other Los Angeles studios where he had worked before Sunset Sound. I just had to get all this stuff so that everything's all in one place. And then his staff had to help me out by coming up with a database for all of these titles so that I knew exactly where everything was if he asked for it. So I started just gathering everything. Of course, the women who worked in his as his staffers, they helped with all that. But the, the, the point was, let's just get it all in one place. There were so many tapes, and this is before we had a physical vault. It's before Paisley Park. You didn't want to keep them in a warehouse because that's not temperature controlled and tape is kind of vulnerable. So we found a place in Minneapolis, just down the street from the warehouse, the rehearsal warehouse that did uh, records storage. I mean, records like document storage. And they provided a temperature controlled, protected environment. And they gave us 24 seven access. So we were able to label each roll of tape with uh, a code, with a number. And then there was a catalog, there was an early computer, there was a database, everything was cataloged. And and that was in, um, that was that was the start of what ultimately became the vault. Now, the other part of your question about whether or not the material in the vault uh, should be released, we don't know. He, he didn't he didn't he didn't leave instructions, but here's what I believe with all my heart. I know that he was proud of the work we did in the years when I was with him. I can't speak to before or after. But when I was with him in that prolific period, he was proud. And the reason I know he was proud is there was a handful of times when he was not proud of something he had done, and he would hold up the three fingers in the shape of a W. And W meant weak. And I can count them on one hand, but there were a few times where he held up that W, and that meant take a Sharpie, write a big W on the tape box, circle it. And as he said to me the first time, and don't ever let me play that tape again. It's weak. <laughs> wow. It happened rarely. It was just, there'd be, there'd be things he didn't like. Everything else he was proud of. It didn't go on record at that time because he, he, there were other songs that he said uh, something similar and he said it better elsewhere. It wasn't the right time for this particular lyrical statement or whatever, so it went in the vault. He pulled many of those things out later to give to other artists. He, he revamped some of that stuff on subsequent records, but I don't believe for a minute that the stuff in the vault is stuff that he didn't want people to hear. I think he wanted people to hear these things. Yeah, I, you know, Funkatopian Nikolaus Schoemacher, uh, the, the question was, um, this is, I'm not 
re-asking the same question, but it is what is your opinion about all the music and video in the vault? I mean, how much yeah. of you kind of feel like probably deserves to be published or released? So I think um well I know there are there are several different audiences for Prince's recorded work. Um and they they all want something a little bit different. Um, there are the fans. The fans want to hear everything he's done because they like his music and they want to know this artist even better. So yeah, they want to hear everything he's done. Then there's another audience that's an audience that doesn't know Prince at all. Maybe younger kids who they weren't around when he was coming up, and they're just discovering him for the first time. And they're going to be listening to his music with very different ears very different ears. So that's a, a separate audience. There's an art, an audience rather of uh, music critics and scholars, the people who write about Prince music and the people who write about music in general, American music in particular, what contribution did Prince actually make in terms of the whole arc of musical history, what was his greatest contribution? What um, what should we be looking to him for? So critics and scholars have uh, an important role to play, and analyzing his music is one way in which they can do their work. And then the, the next audience is, of course, the historians, the ones who are talking about the history of American music, and they'll uh, benefit from having the full story of Prince's contribution to American music. Uh, to use his own lyrics, and I'll say uh, those kinds of cars don't pass you every day. Prince was a really extraordinary musical mind. Yeah. And it would behoove scholars uh, to, to study that kind of musical mind and to understand where did that kid come from? Yeah, absolutely. So one more question about the vault. Um and it's kind of a it, it's kind of a little bit of a two part question, um, but it's from Funkatopia and Pamela Weiss. I kind of have an addendum on the end of this though too. Um, first one is, I think you kind of already answered this. Is did you already have discussions about Prince about what his intentions were for the vault um, after he was gone? Um, <clears throat> I don't think that he assumed that he would be gone before you or or anybody. Mm -hmm. I, I just I just for whatever reason I just don't think that his mortality was in his mind. But I, I think. Yeah would have been more laid out. But the second part of her question was, do you think that he would approve of the remastering of a lot of his work that that's being put out now? Because obviously if he, he had already mixed it and he had already done it, you know, we kind of felt like that was the, the best version of it. But before you answer that two part question, um, I know that there was a New Yorker article where Prince had issues with someone might've been you. I'm not sure, but that had stated that it was, that they wanted to protect the vault, that it was their God-given right to protect the vault. And I guess something in about that comment did not set well with him in that article where he said some unnecessary things and essentially ended with, I still have to brush my own teeth. Basically insinuating that the only person who's going to control the vault is going to be me. <laughs> so with that interview in mind, you know, uh, going back to the two questions of Pamela, did you ever have discussions about Prince? Again, what he, he thought is intentions with the vault were. Um, and again, do you think that he would approve of the, the master remastering of the stuff that's being put out? Yeah. I don't know who, who, 
who offered that quote in the uh, New Yorker article. It certainly wasn't me. I never thought that or believed that. How presumptuous would that have to be right. to think that I would have anything to do with what he decides to put out? Of course not. Uh, and if if it should be discovered that it's attributed to me, then I got to tell you, I was seriously misquoted because <laughs> I never thought or believed anything like that. That's, that's not who I am. Here's what I believe firmly. While an artist is alive, that artist is the one who's in control of his or her public image. They decide what interviews to do and what interviews to not do. They decide what to release and what not to release. They decide what to destroy and what to preserve. It's their life, their career, their reputation, their public image. It belongs to them. It does not belong to their audience or anyone else who may have been involved in that creation. It's the creator's property. After a person passes away, if they've left no instruction as to what to do with their property, then it's no longer their decision to make because they can't make that decision. They chose not to make that decision. They chose not to leave instructions or a will. So now you get to hit the reset button. What matters now is not Prince's public image in the way that he would control it because he can't control it. His, the book is closed. Chapters have all been written. He is no longer with us. What matters now is his legacy. So now we have to think differently about the material in the vault. You think about it one way, or he would think about it one way while he was alive. Now that he's gone, it's his legacy that matters. So what should those of us who know anything at all about him, what should we say about that? We should just say what we think. We don't know if we're right or wrong. There's no way of knowing if we're right or wrong. There's no way of knowing what he would have wanted. It's just an educated guess. You had mentioned the remixes. What would he think about it? Oh, he'd have opinions. He was very opinion, opinionated. <laughs> and he wouldn't have someone else taking his material and doing remixes without his permission. He was supremely in control of his work while he was alive, as it should be. That's the way to do it. But now that he's gone, I can tell you that um, the mixer, Nico Bolas, who did some of those uh, some of those remixes, in my view, did a fantastic job. I'm so happy that Nico Bolas did did those mixes. I, I'm so happy about that. I'm so happy that the great Michael Howe, record executive, oversaw these big releases that have come out. Uh, I've never known a record executive to be more respectful and conscientious than Michael Howe. I, 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 all the conversations I had with him, I could just imagine Prince just smiling at this man for his conscientiousness, his respect, his admiration, his thoughtfulness. Hmm. He put a lot of thought and care into those uh, into those releases, I admire the hell out of that. I don't I don't know how it could have been any better, actually. You know, wow. you know, I, I think about that now that you've mentioned this. You know, you've worked on Purple Rain, Around the World in a Day, Parade, and Sign of the Times. Two of which, Purple Rain and Sign of the Times, have had these deluxe, super deluxe, you know, reiterations 
I know you got to be loving this because you've got to be seeing some of this stuff that was tucked away in the vault now, you know, is finally kind of leaking out. Was there any specific song off of, uh, in, was there any specific songs off of, off of, that you can think of off the top of your head, either off of Purple Rain or Sign of the Times, these deluxe editions that you were like, oh my God, I'm so glad that's finally out. Oh yeah. You know, um, I had, I had mentioned um, earlier, uh, I just finished mentioning how much I respected Michael Howe. And one of the things that Michael did after Prince passed away is he asked me, what do you think should be released? I was really touched by that. Like, who, who am I <laughs> to, to say, you know, Prince's entire career, what should be released? But that's how respectful Michael is. He, he asked all the people who were involved at that time, of that time, what do you think was great? And the first song I mentioned was a song that I did not record. It was before my time, but it was the song Moonbeam Levels. Moonbeam Levels, I loved so much. And we would pull it out of the vault and we'd occasionally sequence it on an album when I was working with Prince. It was a at one point, it was going to be on the Purple Rain album. At one point, it was going to be on the uh, Parade album. At one point, it may have even been considered for Sign of the Times, but I don't remember. He would put it on and then take it off. And I loved it so much. So I'm really happy that Moonbeam Levels was released. But there's another one around the uh, Sign of the Times era called In a Large Room with No Light. Oh, I just nice. love that. Love that. Yes. Yeah. I was so excited to see it because obviously, you know, being being the huge junkie that I was, I was obviously absorbing any, uh, I guess we referred to them as bootlegs back in the mm -hmm. 80s, 90s. I'd get the cassettes and I was just like, I, I just heard so many of these songs way before they were ever released. I was like, oh, I cannot wait for the official release because I yeah. never saw bootlegs as... You know, it, it's just an opportunity to hear something. But once it officially comes out and you get an official, clean, mastered mix, you know, you're going to head, you're going to buy it. That's just all there is to it. Absolutely. You know, I've never known any person that listens to bootlegs that's just like, oh, I don't, I don't need to get the official release of this. This is, this is fine. This oh, oh, yeah. version is perfectly okay with me. I've do you, like do you know, do you know the story of what the Dutch fans thought that Moonbeam Levels was? No. You know, yeah. So uh, I, I have a friend over in the Netherlands who's an avid collector. And uh, he told me that they thought Moonbeam Levels was never stupid. So the, the cassette copy was so bad. It was so degraded. And when Prince would come over and play concerts there in the Netherlands, fans who were avid collectors would be yelling up to the stage, never stupid. Never stupid. <laughs> he must have wondered, what is this? Never stupid? Why are they screaming never stupid at me? They thought the lyrics were da 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 da, da never stupid. <laughs> that was really funny. Oh my gosh, that's ridiculous. All right. I'm gonna we're we're gonna talk about the 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 big albums here, but I only have a few questions on each of them because again, you have been asked every question known to man about the albums that you worked on. So, and I I wanted to try to pride myself. I know that we've repeated some stories that you've told before, but some people haven't heard all these stories. But I also wanted to do my best to try to avoid the monotony as best as possible by asking you know, just a few questions about some of the main albums uh, that you worked on that everybody obviously knows about, starting with Purple Rain. Darling Nikki, um, 
the mix on that one is so drastically different than the rest of the album. And I know that it was because it was recorded in an alternate location with just Prince doing his thing, but it, it was, but it seems like that mix on darling Nikki was intentionally intentionally. I didn't say, you know, that's the capabilities of wherever he was at. And that may be the case, but it seems like it was an intentionally muddier to maybe give it more of a gritty, dirty feel. Um, I mean, the story goes that the production and mix of the song was 100% all him and at a totally different location. Uh, is that true? And were you not given the opportunity to kind of blend it with the feel of the other songs? I mean, was he insistent that it maintained that raw and reverb heavy sound? Yeah. So when I joined Prince, um, the song had already been recorded and mixed. In fact, I think that was the very first tape he ever had me put up in the studio. He asked me to put it up or something because I remember listening to it alone in his home studio, just just right across the hallway from his bedroom. And I, I actually I actually looked around to see if there was anyone else in the room with me because as a Prince fan hearing a brand new Prince song, especially one that powerful, I just remember thinking, oh is anybody <laughs> is anybody else hearing this? Like this is I, I I I could not believe that moment. It is stuck with me my whole life being alone in his house listening to a new Prince song. So the the sound of it, yeah, it's raw and dirty, like the lyrics right. in that record. Yeah, yeah. It's sometimes the sonic uh, picture is actually assisting with the message of 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 the lyrics um we all know that prince felt psychologically a powerful dichotomy between his spiritual faith and belief his his gratefulness to god his his desire to be a good decent person not to not to blow this gift he'd been given juxtaposed against lust and a desire to be to be sinful and to cross that line so anytime he would write a song where he's just in the throes of of sexual um captivity yeah he'd kind of go overboard he'd kind of rough it up a little bit he'd kind of deliberately give it not the same degree of care that he would give to something like computer blue or the beautiful ones or even purple rain. He's trying to say, this is, this is just pure desire coming out. This is desire, desire coupled with of course, brilliant lyric writing and things like that. But yeah, having that mix be dirty would have served him just, just perfectly. I've, I've, I've talked in other interviews before about technical mistakes that went on record because he, he, it worked for him. Like the song, the ballad of Dorothy Parker um, running through a messed up recording console and actually sounding a little bit like it was underwater. Well, yeah, the song was inspired by a dream. Perfect. That was a happy accident. He was happy with that. And another time that was, it's famous now is that I accidentally had the preamp set 10 dB too hot on his vocal chain for the vocal on if I was your girlfriend. Well, Good for him because he's actually saying something that a lot of men in, in that day and age didn't say. If I was your girlfriend, 
um, that was it was kind of forward thinking, having a, some distortion on that vocal, having that vocal be squashed a little bit and a little bit scratchy and sound like it's coming through a cheap mic. Okay, that puts a little psychological distance now between you and the listener. So he, he Prince liked liked a little bit of dirt in his music. And before I wrap up, I know I'm long winded, but um, nope. I, I mentioned Tommy Jordan earlier, um, the Tommy who is so creative, and I have so many quotes from Tommy, but Tommy always says, we got to remember music is an expression of life. Life is clean and it's dirty. It smells sweet and it stinks. It's fragile and it's robust. It's simple and it's complex. Prince knew that, that music was an expression of his life and there was simply no need to make it perfect. You could have you could have some dirt under your nails when you're making music, and 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 it's fine. Uh, here's another example: uh, the cross. I can never, I'll never figure out why he was okay with that tempo speeding up on the cross. I thought for sure we were going to redo the drums. He was happy with it. It's he. It said what he wanted to say. That's all that mattered. Yeah, once it once it started rolling, he was just like it, it's you know it's just part of the flow. It was mm -hmm. interesting that you mentioned that you know dichotomy about you know the god and 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 wanting to sin and everything because i had heard a story too that he that's intentionally how he created a lot of his singles too like he had purple rain and on the flip side he had god and there was like mm -hmm. a few singles that were like that where he would he would have one song that would say one thing and then the flip side would say something totally different mm -hmm. uh, so it's an interesting interesting amount so mm -hmm. as far as darling nickley was concerned was the back masking on that already as well no, we did that as a as a sequence piece, if I'm remembering correctly from all those years ago. But when you decide where the record is going to be, where the song is going to be on on the the vinyl on the on the record where it's going to appear, sequencing an album is uh, kind of tricky because you've got you, you, you're coming out of one song and you've got a certain tempo. And the way we would do it is um, you have the two tape machines up. You'd have um, the the song you precedes darling Nikki, let's say, and it's at a certain tempo and I'd be standing at the tape machine with a grease pencil and Prince would I'd watch his face for a cue and he'd be kind of counting along two, three, four, and he would nod his head and I'd mark the tape with the grease pencil because that's where he wants the next song on the record to come in. So you go ahead and you cut the tape and you, you, you cut that, next song there on the mark and then you listen back to it you play the tail of song a and you hear the head of song b um sometimes the keys don't match up well sometimes you you're going to a lower key or you might be going to a slower tempo and it can sound as though the record loses pressure there for a minute so just like in a television show or in a movie you can't really have two big scenes right next to each other your audience needs a little breather so you need a, a segue piece that will help tie those two disparate scenes together so that's when we would get creative with the tape machines and we would do um just these little segue pieces that would then the tail end of a song would go into the segue piece and then the segue piece would fade into the head of the next song and you make that transition a little bit more smoothly. Well, that, that back masking on the tail end of Darling Nikki, um, even when you, uh, for those that, you know, obviously don't know, I, we have a lot of new Prince fans, but you know, at the end you have this, this strange back masked area, but when you play it, but even when you play it forward, 
it seems simple enough to just record something forward and then just flip it around on the recording. But every time I hear it, when it's flipped over, I hear something else that happening there that, that it's like, it wasn't done that way here. Um, it's here, here's, here's a little sample of this for those who are curious about what it sounds like forward. Hello, how are you? Especially on this coming part. Now, what's interesting about that to me is that even though that's, you know, that's the forward version of this, it doesn't, there's something about that that just does not sound right. It's like the way that it was, it's like, I don't know if it's like was dragged or maybe, you know, like you put your fingers on the reel at that point to kind of make it have a weird, there's something else going on there that I, it's, it's always drawn my attention to it. And I, I, I've always wondered if there was something weird happening with that process. Yeah, that's a super slow flange, really, really slow flange going back and forth between the left and right channels. You're hearing some phasing going on there and really deep modulation. So yeah, that's he 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 loved those those kinds of effects. I can't even imagine what rec just recording that forward, which just seems it's I can't even imagine what that process looks like. I, I mean, is it just him just layering his vocals over just and over? Just layering over? his vocals and then in the mix stage, just running it through a running it through a flanger. It sounds like I'm thinking it might have been there's a device made by Lexicon called the PCM 42. And you can get you can do a flange on that. Um it's got a very speed oscillator and, and you can adjust the rate of that oscillator and the shape of the oscillator, and you can get that sound pretty easily on that lexicon pcm 42 he loved those things i did too so uh yes it's yeah that that would have been cool. a, that would have been one way to get that to get that effect and then you you flip the tape upside down and do it backwards for um for the segue piece but a, a lot of times like on the song uh starfish and coffee for example you'd start with backwards drums and then everything else would be put on in the forward direction so on some of these pieces some of it's backwards and some of it's forwards yeah, and I imagine did, were you in part of the uh, process of uh, of recording "Girl"? Yeah, I seem to remember that I might have been, but maybe I people, wasn't. Maybe a lot that of know this. Uh, we can look it up on print. Uh, Jeff Page, can you look up "Girl" on uh, Prince Vault and see if uh, if because what's cool it about might have been, yeah. if you play "Girl" backwards, it's a song called "Boy." And it is, it's, it's a vocal that is layered in the background, a female voice. I think it's, I wonder, was it Jill? I can't remember who it was. It might've been Jill from that era. Yeah. So uh, yeah, she actually sings uh, or talks uh, a, a completely different song. That's like really soft mm. in the background when you're listening to it forward, but it's, it just creates this really weird vibe. Yeah. I, now that I'm thinking about it, I, I, I remember the song from, early when I joined him, but I think maybe because we put the tape up, I don't, I don't think I, I recorded it. Yeah. I think it was before me. Yeah, uh, let's see what else would I, uh, for those that don't know uh, the song electric intercourse, 
that was going to be on Purple Rain was actually dropped in exchange for beautiful ones. And I think also Moonbeam Levels was also flipped in there too. But uh, how did you feel about that decision? Oh, that live version of Electric Intercourse. I loved that so much. Yeah. I really loved it a lot. And of course, I love the beautiful ones. So you can only get, you know, 34 minutes worth of music on an album. So something had to go. But uh, I, I thought that was an outstanding, outstanding vocal performance. I really loved it a lot. Yeah, I, I could only I can only imagine it. And I, I've seen a couple of people ask here about, um, I guess, the more uh, erotic stuff that may have been recorded. I, I think you had mentioned this. Uh, it was recorded around the same time as Purple Rain, but not released until uh, years later, uh, Weekend F. Um, mm -hmm. Any studio adventures that you can share, not necessarily necessarily about that recording, uh, but I mean, obviously there's some stuff going on there with Jill Jones in the studio, uh, if I remember the stories correctly, but there's also so a bunch of crazy things that apparently, uh, you know, rumor-wise, happened in the studio were you ever in a scenario where you're like uh yeah i'm just gonna hit record i'm gonna go grab something to eat you, you do you no i'm glad you asked me that question never never really? I, I i did not that original recording of the song you mentioned i did not participate in um i wasn't there and boy do i regret that because Gosh, that original recording I thought was so powerful. I liked it so much. He redid it later on with a different attitude, and I think I was part of the, the redoing of it with the new horn line and everything. And he did he brought in George Clinton after I had already left. So unfortunately, I wasn't part of that session. But yeah, they, they redid it. And it, for me, it was never as powerful as the original version. Um, Prince, I, I can't emphasize this enough was respectful. So uh, it may have been Peggy McCreary at Sunset Sound. I believe it was recorded at Sunset. So Peggy might have been might have been there, but she probably would have been asked. I'm certain she would have been asked to leave the room. I, he um, he kept those things private. He kept them private and he, he was respectful to people. You wouldn't go into his house and see pornography. You wouldn't. You, you wouldn't see you wouldn't see Playboy magazine or nude pictures or things. He was a little bit prudish about those sorts of things, believe it or not. Do you remember the remember the song from Crystal Ball? Well, the song Crystal, Crystal Ball, there's a line in that song that says, while soldiers draw their swords of sorrow, my baby draws pictures of sex all over the walls in graphic detail. Sex. Yeah, you're talking about Susanna. Well, he was with Susanna at the time, and uh, she, she, he had said okay to her doing a mural, a mural, drawing a mural on the wall of his his den where the pool table was. It had these two nude nymphs, nymphs like fairies, long lean beings with really, really they were female but really flat chested, just nymphs with wings, sort of an angel like kind of thing. So that was his all over the wa walls in graphic detail. Sex. <laughs> it was yeah, I, yeah, rated I, G. Right. It was it was that tame. Uh, you know, if if you're a writer, everything inspires you. So of course he used artistic license to exaggerate, but there might have been a little grain in there of, of feeling like, oh, I don't know about this. 
Yeah. 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 Uh, All right. On to Around the World in a Day. Funkatopia and Tanya D. Harris ask, if possible, can you explain what the meaning is behind Prince's lyric in Condition of the Heart, where he says, every day is yellow. I'm blinded by the daisies in your yard. Uh, she said, in the Sunset interview you did, uh, you appeared to get a little emotional when discussing that song. So curious if there is a deeper meaning that we're not aware of. And also, why does he use the color yellow if he's sad? And when he uses blinded by, does he mean there's so much beauty you can't take it? I'll let you try to answer that cluster of questions about yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna offer you just a guess because he didn't talk about it it, it wouldn't be like prince to say well, here's what i was thinking so i'm just gonna guess and i do get choked up when i hear that song um because i i think it was one of his most vulnerable moments on record and he didn't like to be vulnerable on record he liked to be powerful or sexy or desperate, but he didn't like to be vulnerable. And he was on that record. And, and I, I, I just loved it. I thought it was genius. So um, Prince met Lisa, uh, Lisa Coleman in the late 70, 79, 80, something like that. And uh, then later on, he met Wendy Melvine and right away hired her and put her in his band. And then he met Wendy's twin sister. Susanna Melvoin, and fell hard for her, really hard. So the three of them, Wendy, Lisa, and Susanna have, well, Wendy and Susanna are twins, but they've known Lisa since they were in diapers. So the three of them were really, really tight. And they're from Los Angeles, where it's sunny and bright. So Prince, early in his career, spent a lot of time sleeping on their couch and just hanging out with these three young women. <laughs> Wendy and Susanna are two of the most fun-loving, life-loving, funny, happy people you will ever want to meet. When you're with them, you laugh a lot. Stuff is always funny. Wendy's got a great sense of humor. Susanna shares that sense of humor. So when they were with Prince, he found himself in the midst of these three beautiful women, Wendy, Lisa, and Susanna, who laughed and were fun. Their world was yellow and bright and sunny with optimism. Prince was a, a kid who came from a, a, a rough childhood in North Minneapolis, where it's cold and gray and dreary. Wendy and Lisa and Susanna were from Southern California, where it's sunny and warm every day. He was spending a lot of time with Susanna um, as he was writing the songs for Around the World in a Day, and he was having some difficulty because she was um, with someone. She was with someone else, and, and she wasn't sure she wanted to break up with the guy that she was with, so Prince was having a hard time convincing her that she should be with him. So the lines when he says, uh, every day is a yellow day. I'm blinded by the daisies in your yard. In her life, every day is a sunny yellow day. Mm. And he's a little bit blinded by that. It's, it's, it's hard, it's hard to, to see who she is, what she wants, and whether or not they could be compatible I'm blinded by the daisies in your yard. That that that's my best guess. Um, I think he always struggled just a little bit. He wanted the sunshine and the light and laughter and love of Wendy, Lisa, and Susanna, but 
everyone has a dark side and an artist has a dark side. And, and perhaps he worried that um, with his dark side, um, he couldn't do it. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't make this last, which ultimately proved correct because they, they weren't able to stay together. Yeah, I, there's a lot of stories with him and Susanna that uh, yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for her book. <laughs> All right. You got to tell me the story behind this. Obviously, the intro to America. Uh, is there some story about why it was decided to be started that way? I mean, obviously, it's probably just, again, finger on the reels or, or whatever it is. Is there some type of reasoning for the decision, I guess, to create it intro like that? Yeah, it's just fun. It's just something fun to do. So you, you can, go. yeah, if the tape machine, the multi-track tape machine is parked, you can disengage the brakes easily enough and you can manually take the take up reel and just spin it by hand. And so do that. And then the output of the tape machine is feeding the half inch stereo machine. So the stereo machine goes into record and you put your hand on the reel for the, uh, for the, for the, for the multi-track and you just spin it. till you get a piece that you like? That sounds good to you. See, there's a lot of trial and error. You know, you do it a few times and you get a piece that you like and bammo, you've got that piece. Then you cut that into the master, um, the head of, of, of the actual mix of the song. Yeah. And for those who wonder what it would sound like if that wasn't there, it would just been pretty much like a repeat of the intro, which is, it would just been basically been the same part. Mm. So that's essentially what, but yeah, I was, did he do it or did you do it? Did he I don't remember. I'm so sorry. I don't remember. Now, remember, forgive me, everyone. This was 35 years no, ago. <laughs> and I had so little sleep. You know, as I said, that train moved really fast. So every day was bam, 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 bam. There's so much stuff happening. So I don't remember what well, we would have had to. He would have asked for it. I knew how to achieve something like that. That's easily done. We would have set it up and and then just done it. One one of the other of us would have, it was probably him. He probably had his hand on the reel and was spinning it to get the effect he wanted. Yeah. All right. So I know we have a lot more questions, but the problem is, is that I want to, again, I want to be respectful of your time and I know, you know, it's getting late and everything. So I want to kind of touch on a couple of things regarding your book and also have it, you know, tie into some of the, the Prince things. Um, there was high expectations for around the world in a day coming off of that massive success of, of purple rain. I mean, it was so heavy in the experimental sounds and instrumentation, you know, compared to some of the other stuff that was a little bit more straightforward, still inventive, but in your book, you discuss what is called the novelty popularity curve. Here is a, actually a, a picture of that from the book. And where do you feel that around the world in a day would fall on this curve? Hmm. Uh, what this curve is depicting is record sales on the y-axis there and on the x-axis on the far left-hand side is the most familiar music. Music that is in the actual most familiar music would be lullabies and children's songs. Simple, simple music. And then on the right-hand side, the most novel or complex music would be music like freeform jazz, which is trying to be as unpredictable as possible. Neither children's records nor 
preform jazz sell a lot to adults. So the music that most adults buy is pop music, the stuff on the pop charts. That's why it's got the big hump in the middle of that curve. So there are a lot of musics in other kinds of styles to the left or to the right of the center of the curve that don't sell as much as pop, but they have their fans. So on the left-hand side of the curve, you've got classic music. Classic music meaning classic forms like rock or disco or reggae or funk, the, the styles that we know really well. You know how this genre of music goes and fans of these classic styles, when they buy new records, are, are listening for for records that, that, that stay true to that classic style that they know and love. On the right-hand side of the bell curve is, I just put it in quotation marks there, but it's art music. It's music that isn't hewing to a familiar form, but rather is trying to reinvent forms and be innovative. So um, you started by saying uh, there were great expectations for around the world in a day. Well, that's pretty unfair. Um, you, you, everything goes in cycles. And <laughs> when an artist has just done a masterpiece, give a guy a break. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. yeah. The, the reality of the expectations, people are like, oh, what's coming next? Right. And this always happens. We all often say about a, a hit record is that's an albatross around your neck. I don't know where that expression comes from, but wow, uh, you have a hit record and then people expect you to do it again. Life doesn't really go like that. So right. he created a masterpiece and then you want to flush out the system and you want to push forward, and you want to ask yourself, all right, what's going to be my next trick? So you need a little breather. You need some time to kind of experiment with styles, to experiment with lyrical themes, to experiment with um, ways of writing and w ways of considering your music, um, just to see what's going to work the best. So you've got what we would call in the business a, a transition record where you're transitioning from one definitive style to whatever your next style is going to be. Um, I happen to have a fondness for around the world in a day in particular, because as Prince was doing all this experimentation, figuring out what his next style was going to be, most of that, those recordings were done before Purple Rain was even released. So he still didn't know for sure how well Purple Rain was going to do. Um, once he knew for sure that he had achieved superstar status, I think his approach to music changed a little bit. So we get on the on the parade album, you get an artist who's more who seems to be more deliberately aware of having to um, have to having to contribute to his legacy and possibly, if he's got it in him, possibly do a second masterpiece. I mean, most artists don't even do one. So that's that's the big question after you've released something that's just been lauded as being great. <clears throat> Whether you're a film director or a painter or a television showrunner or whatever, what do you do next? It's really hard to follow that up. You need a little breather and then maybe you'll release a second masterpiece. Anyway, around the world in a day, I would put on the right side of that bell curve uh, it was a transition record where he was experimenting a little bit to see what was going to work for him. Yeah, you know, I it's funny I, with all of that. It just seems to me like um, 
with the level of of how he was producing music that even after creating that masterpiece prince would have been one of those people that didn't go now what he just kept working you know the 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 breather the transition the transitions the moving on that just came natural because when you're a conduit when you're just letting things flow through you your body knows what it wants to do mm-hmm. so it seems to me like he would those breaks and those changes they didn't have to be planned it would just happen and, yeah. yeah and remember now that at this point in his life he's got a lot of money and so yeah. he's thinking about things in the world and um, he's thinking about how people behave and he's thinking about the kind of world that he's going to live in with all this money. So you get songs like Pop Life. You get songs like America. He's kind of, uh, he's talking more about, about a larger world. You get the song Paisley Park. Now all of a sudden there's an us. So with Purple Rain, that was one man's vision, very much so despite the contribution from the revolution, which was, was huge, it was still Prince's, Prince expressing himself. But on the, around the world in the day, I think he was trying hard to express a sense of us. That's why the cover has so many people on the cover. And, that, and that's why he's, he's writing about um, a place where all of us make this kind of music. All of us contribute to his art. Yeah. Fast forwarding to, I, I, I regretfully want you know I don't want to necessarily skip over parade, but there's there's so much stuff, so many questions about parade um, that I I could ask. I mean, I, like for the question about why this why life could be so nice ends like it does. I was always curious as to why the decision was to just not only cut it right there, but also cut it mid word. Like that's another weird conscious decision. That's just like an attention getter. It's just like you probably say just for fun. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Uh, It's certainly better than a fade out for something like that. And, and it's exciting and it it launches the next, the next song. So it it worked well in the sequence, which goes into, I think Venus de Milo after that, Mm -hmm. which, Bring bring the tempo way down. Yeah, sometimes it snows in April. Can you even listen to that song now? Do you? Is that- it took it took a little minute after he passed away. It took a little minute for yeah. uh, myself and I and I certainly know Wendy and Lisa, all of us, to be able to get through that one without crying. Uh, it just was really really hard. I'll never forget that session though. That was really really beautiful. Um, all right, so. I want to ask you a couple more questions. So I've seen a few people ask this question about backwards drums on starfish and coffee. Does that, uh, I, I don't recall there being backwards drums on starfish and coffee. Maybe, maybe there is, but somebody says there's backwards drums on starfish. And coffee. Yeah. It's, I don't remember now if it's just the snare, if it's the kick and snare, I haven't heard it in a long time, but uh, the drum machine's pretty simple. You just, a, a, a one bar loop is all you have to program. And um, you re- record five or six minutes of that on tape, flip the tape upside down and just play it backwards because it's an even pattern. It's going to, it's going to work backwards as well as forwards. The idea behind that was to um, kind of, kind of set the tone for who this Cynthia Rose was, this young woman with developmental disabilities who um, Susanna went to school with. Susanna went to a, a really um 
forward, liberal, uh, experimental school, uh, high school, and when she was when she was young in Southern California. Anyway, Cynthia Rose was developmentally delayed, and Cynthia would you'd ask her what are you having for lunch, and she'd say starfish and coffee, and the backwards drums were just sort of a a tip of the hat to a different kind of thinking. Yeah, I think the original thing that she said was starfish and pee-pee, I think is what the <laughs> Yeah, was. I seem to remember that, yeah. Uh, you know, and with Sign of the Times, you know, a couple more points here, and then we're going to talk about the book and close it out. Uh, Prince decides he's moving on as far as Sign of the Times is concerned, you know, ultimately fires the revolution. You know, what do you... You're kind of in the studio here. You've kind of been friends with all these people and, and you know, now everything's just kind of changing and everything's flipping over. I mean, what was the vibe there at the time? I mean, you know, normally in a close work environment, you know, when someone gets fired, the workers kind of that are still there or, you know, trying to find, oh, hey, you hear what happened to Bobby? What happened yeah. to Cindy? I mean, was, you know, was there chatter? I mean, did you kind of, I mean, you had obviously established some close relationships with all the the people that you work with. I mean, but what what's the vibe i mean how are you even feeling like your own position is in jeopardy i mean what's what's the overall feeling about all that actually you know after the revolution broke up uh, that last year when i was with him ironically i think that's the closest we ever were he gave me more responsibility than ever before and we spent um probably more i want to say quality time together just being alone together at that time, uh, I, we're not there to, to be friends. We're not there to do anything other than work. And my job was always very clear. My role is to facilitate his recording. Whatever recording he needs done, that's what I have to help make happen. And I always took that very seriously. But the mood was very somber. He, uh, he was not himself during a lot of that. He was quieter. He was more serious. He didn't laugh as much. Um, was, it, he, he, was, he was more stern. He was trying out glasses, you know, the song Wally. He was trying out a new look and, and I, I, he didn't seem as happy. He didn't seem sad. He wasn't depressed, but he, he certainly seemed to have a lot on his mind and he wasn't as happy as he had been. It was difficult for him uh, to to lose his band just like it was difficult for the band members that was a tough split it's a tough split and uh, i've also written about the fact that at this time he's also his relationship with susanna their engagement is really coming unraveled um he's about to turn 30 and the style of music he makes now is not the popular kind because now rap and hip hop are beginning to dominate the airwaves. And the, as it does in the music business, the public's appetite moves forward at a really fast clip. So here he is. Is he going to have a second masterpiece or not? And if so, will it be now? And another dilemma he's facing is he's got to write for a whole new band because he's got to tour this record. And the performers he has on stage are not the same. That's not Mark Brown on bass. That's not Bobby Z on drums. That's not Wendy and Lisa on keys and guitars. Right. These are different players who, who have a different style of their own. So now he's got to arrange his music differently to suit and show off these players. So there were a lot of problems he needed to solve right around then. It, it blows my mind that in that pressure cooker 
he was able to come up with what is considered to be a masterpiece, not just any old masterpiece, a double album. Right. That that's yeah, yeah that's the biggest. And you did mention Wally, uh, because I know Funkatopia and Susan Nancy uh Bethel, um hope I'm not pronouncing her name correctly. She she actually had a question about that song that you had talked about was erased when he originally recorded it. And it was just re-released on the super deluxe. And I mean, it's assumed that it was re-recorded differently. Um, Hearing the version that was released though, do do you feel like it was similar to what you heard or was the one that he erased significantly different in vibe or tone? I mean, um, yeah, the lyrics are the same. The basic melody is the same, but the vibe of it is is different. So the original Wally was similar to Condition of the Heart, the Beautiful Ones, um, similar in the in the vulnerability. This is this is him expressing that. Wow, that was a major blow, and that really hurt. This breakup really hurt. And it was beautiful. It was gentle. Mm. it was sincere it was sweet it was it, it it sounded like the prince that i love the most which is why i i was so excited as a fan to hear it because i thought oh yeah it's been a little while you know you've been doing the harder stuff you've been doing housequake you've been doing all these dance things and you did uh, so many of the tracks that ended up on the black album you've been doing all this hard funk stuff yes please more of this more of these beautiful ballads and then when we finished it, it was just the two of us at his home in Minneapolis, and he had me erase the tape. In fact, I don't think I even pressed the record button. Uh, he said, if, if you don't, I will. And he reached his hand over the remote for the tape machine. He put the, all the tracks in ready record, and I believe it was his finger that pressed the record button, but it was wiped out. The only thing that survived was a single cassette of that song. Mm. He made a cassette before he erased it. Um, Anyway, when when he ultimately decided, well, you know, it was a good song. Let me redo it. He changed his approach to it. The um, the re-recorded version of Wally has more braggadocio to it. It has more playfulness. He's kind of saying like, yeah, you know, sh- she left me, but I'm fine. I'm good. I'm gonna be fine. It's all good. Right. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Good. Um, record producers know that when we're producing someone in the studio, we're considering the audience and songs that uh, a man listener might respond to might be different from a song that a woman would want to hear. And I can tell you a woman would want to hear that original version of Wally. Yeah, but I think he did the, he did the, the new version for the guys. You know, and what was the ultimate, and if this is too personal, just let me know. But what was the ultimate? I know that there was a little bit of a fiasco with the Black Album. I, I don't I don't recall how much you worked on the Black Album. I know, Bob George, you had your, your hands on um, and some tracks on the Black Album, if I'm correct. Uh, but I know that there was some things that happened with the Black Album and the spiritual epiphany or mm. induced whatever. Uh, <laughs> that allowed him that that basically had him cancel that and go to love sexy. Was that the breaking point for you as far as stepping away? What was the, what was the crux? It was like, okay, Hmm. I think we're done here. Yeah. I can tell you the chronology of that. All of the songs that appeared on the black album uh, were songs that I recorded with him, except for one. I think uh, I want to say, I wish you heaven 
when to are in love tour in love maybe i i I don't remember uh the track listing on that but i remember looking at the track listing when it finally did come out and realizing i've done all of them except for for one wow anyway um and and all of the songs that were on there that i had participated in were songs that were never intended for a prince record they most of them like la grind and cindy c um those were records that we did really quickly taking a break from sign of the times while we were in los angeles at sunset sound we stopped work on sign of the times just to play around to play around and record some songs that he could dance to at sheila's birthday party so he was renting out a club in los angeles it may have been flaming colossus it may have been vertigo but it was one of those those la clubs that he was renting out for sheila's birthday party and what you could do back in those analog days is um you could take your half-inch stereo master tape down the street, down Sunset Boulevard, to Bernie Grundman, Grundman Mastering, and Bernie would master an acetate for you. So you'd walk out of there with an acetate, with a record, 12-inch record. You'd give that record to a DJ at First Avenue or a club or anything, and the DJ can play that record. So we, we, we did uh, so many of these dance things just to have fun with at Prince liked to dance to his own music at uh, at Sheila's birthday party. So uh, I left not too long after that. Well, I left in uh, September or October of 87 and Sheila's birthday was in December. So yeah, it was a while afterward. Anyway, uh, I left because um, I think we had both realized we reached the end of the line. I'll return to the story of the Black Album in a moment, but I'm going chronologically. So in June, I think it was, Paisley Park officially opened its doors. And when Paisley Park Studios opened its doors, now finally Prince could work at home differently than he had ever worked before. Instead of having just one engineer at a warehouse, he now has multiple studios, professional studios with a staff of assistant engineers and people who can work with him. He's got a lot of different engineers to choose from. It doesn't have to be just the one person anymore. So he had reached a new way of working. And uh, I had reached a point where it had been over four years and uh, going on five and I hadn't seen my family or uh, had any personal life to speak of. Uh, it, it was just time. It was, it was time. And so we split. It was amiable, painful, but amiable. It was the right time for me and for him, I have to admit. Anyway, I learned later that um, he was disappointed with the reception the critical reception for sign of the times. And in particular, there was some criticism that he wasn't black enough. Mm. And his knee jerk reaction was, I'll show you who's black. Let me just take all these songs, all these funk things that I did, call it the black album, put it out there. Will you be happy with that? At the last minute, he realized, what am I doing? I'm Prince. I don't put reactionary albums out there in the world. I'm not reactive. I'm proactive. I'm an artist. I put out my art, not a reaction to someone's criticism of me. And he yanked it mm. for good reason. I, I'm, I'm really glad he did that because they, they those, the records that the, those songs that appear on that album were not intended to be his best work or not intended to be the statement he wanted to make for his next album. Yeah. I, yeah. So, yeah. 
And I'm glad that it was, you know, you guys were able to walk away amicably. Did you follow his career afterwards? I mean, obviously you probably paid attention to some of the stuff that, that came out. It was hard to, it was hard to, I, I remember, um, I think it was on the guest list. It might've been, um, for a live show he did, uh, would have been the, maybe the love sexy tour or something. It was, it was some time after I left and I, I was working in the studio. So I got to the gig late and I'm walking through this parking lot, walking toward this arena and through the walls, I can hear Prince music. And that was just too weird. That was just too weird to be walking through that parking lot, hearing Prince music and not being inside that building. Because of course I'd been so heavily trained that when Prince music is playing, I better be working. It, it, it felt awkward and uncomfortable. I needed to establish my own career. Um, I did get invited um, several occasions to come to Paisley Park Studios and do work, not invited by Prince, but clients would book me and they'd book Paisley Park to do mixing or things like that. So I did, I did go back and I, I saw him several times at Paisley while and I was working there. Any albums that he released after you that you really like? Yeah, I think Musicology is is perhaps my favorite. I like that one a lot. Yeah, but it was he's he was someone who ah, I wish I could, but I wish I could listen to him and not have the memories, not have the associations. It's now impossible for me to listen to him and and not remember so much. And that's as I said earlier, that's not what I do when I listen. To music when i listen to music i, I want to picture the performer in the studio and that's that's complicated now when i listen to that too i think it was hans yeah. martin buff i think said the same thing he was like i i you know love him but it's like you know once you you know work for him for years and it's just like it, it makes it very difficult it kind of puts this layer of you know you know it, there's other things attached to it you know emotional attachments that kind of caused the way and that kind of lends itself to you know what you talk about in your book is is how songs affect you the things that it, it kind of kicks off the mm -hmm. um i think it, it probably feels a little bit like going to your ex's wedding right <laughs> so oh yeah it's a happy occasion this is great and maybe you, the breakup needed to happen you were okay with breaking up but still there's your ex up there getting married to somebody else and yeah it's it could be painful yeah, I, I had no idea where to put this question. Funkatopian Terry Orlando Jones wants to know if you remember who held your hand in silence for 10 seconds after the Boston Revolution show at the Wilbur Theater. Give me a second. Here, here's a hit. It was Terry Orlando Jones. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. Yeah. 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 Uh, I do remember that. Um, Dr. Susan Rogers, new book. It's called This Is What It Sounds Like. I've got it over here. Again, green screen is playing tricks on it. I think we have it that we can we can definitely uh, put it up here and uh, and show you a uh, what the cover looks like. Mm. It's absolutely fantastic book. I love this thing. Um, and as I said, you know, what's really cool, if you want to you know, order the book, it, you can go to funkatopia.com slash Susan. I made it very, very simple. Just F-U-N-K-A-T-O-P-I-A.com slash Susan. You'll be able to see the cover of the book there and the link to the Amazon to purchase it for, you know, uh, either on Kindle or hardcover, which I got the hardcover because I, uh, uh, whoops, I like the, phys I like the physical, I like the book. So when I get to uh, 
uh, see you. I definitely want to get you an opportunity to sign it as well. Um, and one of the things I wanted to ask you, you know, with the, the, you now have a background in neuroscience that's based in music and I guess psychoacoustics. Mm-hmm. I, my question I have for you uh, regarding this is, do you think now that you have a, a, with that, that you have a better appreciation for music or would it be better if you were a musician or, uh, or is it, again, is it actually better that now that you have a scientific understanding of how songs are structured? I mean, who has the advantage, do you think? Yeah, boy, in my fantasy mind, how, how I, I would love to be a musician. Gosh, you know, I've envied that my whole life. I, I, I haven't pursued it because I don't think I am that. I think I'm musical, but I don't think I'm a musician. So, yeah, musicians know something about music that I don't know because they write it and they play it. Um, however, knowing something about the neuroscience of music, there is no way, no way that that's going to diminish the mystery and the joy of what music is. Any, any, any scientist knows the more you find out about a natural phenomenon, the more your mind is blown. So there's nothing more complex in the known world than the human brain. When you're studying the human brain, it's like looking into a cave that is so impossibly deep. Not only will you never get to the bottom of it, probably no one will ever get to the bottom of it. Certainly not in your lifetime and probably not in the next generations either. It is so mysterious. So consider this, for example, consider how a person can hear a record for the first time, fall instantly in love with it, like head over heels in love with it. The record makes them swoon. They love that record for life. They play it for other musicians or other listeners, rather, and the other listener says, yeah, it's okay. Right. It's okay. Oh, it's so frustrating. How does that happen? Why? Why the- does it happen? Did you ever consider what the phenomenon is? Have you ever seen, I'm sure you have, uh, Bobby McFerrin and his uh, clip that he does with pentatonic scale? Uh, it's part of the, it's part of the science thing. It's like a, it's like a minute and a half. Well, it's a, by, by a couple minutes video, but it's so intriguing. Um, I don't even know if I have it, but it, it's so intriguing because of the fact that um the pentatonic scale scale is one of these things that is um, un, it's, it's it's like an unexplained phenomenon. Mm. Expectations, expectations. Hold on a second. Watch what? this. Ba, ba, <laughs> ba, what was that skip? Ba, ba, I think the video is skipping a little bit and uh, but I think you kind of get the idea is that he he kind of introduces the audience to a tone mm-hmm. and when he jumps to another location he he it it does another tone and then without guiding them 
he almost goes through the whole pentatonic scale and the, the crowd follows along. Most of them not musicians, most of them in, uh, you know, they, and he, and one of the things that he mentions on this is that no matter where he goes, no matter what level of musicianship that anybody has, it's like the pentatonic scale is something that is ingrained in people that he can go and, and to kids that have no background in music and musical knowledge and do that exercise with the ba 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 and they get it no matter where he goes so that that part of the it, it that's what intrigued me about your book is is you know hoping that you would kind of touch on some of those mysteries of those things that you know how can it be hmm. how can it be that somebody is familiar with something like that without any training, without any musical background, you know, it's hmm. staggering to me that that's a thing. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty cute. It's pretty cute to consider <clears throat> when you're a fetus and you're in the, you're in the womb in the final trimester, it's muffled, but you hear mom's voice and you hear that heartbeat. Mm. Mostly you're hearing mom's voice. You're hearing that melody and then you're born and your caregivers are using their voices to calm you down. And they speak a certain way when they want you to calm down. And they speak a different way when they want you to kind of wake up and get out of your pajamas because we're going to grandma's house. And they, their voices get a little bit more excited. And the melodies go a little bit differently when they're trying to get you to be engaged. When they're reprimanding you, they use a different tone of voice. When they're warning you, they're using another tone of voice. So pitch and amplitude and duration. We're learning all of that from a very early age, how the melodies and the rhythms of our voices convey emotion. So in the human brain, language for most of us is on that left hemisphere. And then there's a homologous, a similar structure over there on the right hemisphere for most of us. And some left-handed people that swapped, but we all have these these two hemispheres where speech is processed in one and melody, pitch, is processed in the other. So when you're listening to a record, you can focus on just the words or you can focus on just the melody. We all know melody because we know how the human voice is used to convey not just information, but feelings. People's voices and how they use their voices, their speech prosody and their cadences Tell us what's going on with them. Uh, an interesting thing is that the melodies created by, the compositions created by uh, French composers sounds like the French language. The music composed by Vietnamese composers sounds like the Vietnamese language. This has been shown in the laboratory. You can take unknown composers of classical instrumental music, play it for participants in the lab, and they can guess, accurately guess the native language of that composer in many, many cases, because German music sounds German, English music sounds English, and so on. So when Bobby McFerrin goes around the world and he's getting listeners to join in with him in a pentatonic scale, this is something we all know innately, even if we've never studied music, we know musical intervals, the musical intervals of our culture we know best, but Western music has gone all over the world now. It's the lingua franca of 
world music. Mm. So pretty much anybody in the world today knows about the Western tonal scale. Why did you decide to become a professor of psychoacoustics? I imagine that all your work as an, as an engineer was was paying the bills, but what, mm. you know, what, what made you decide, hey, this, this is what I want to do? It was the same thing that happened when I was a kid and I felt the calling to make records. Um, in my late 30s, I felt the calling to want to be a scientist. It just felt like, I think I would really like that. And the more I got into it and started reading some science books, the more I think, oh, I want that so badly. And then all I needed to have happen was I needed a hit record. Back in the days before Napster, when you actually bought records, uh, if you if you had a hit record as a producer and you had royalties on that record, you got a nice six-figure six figure paycheck. And then six months later, you'd get another one. Those were the good old days. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I had a hit record with Bare Naked Ladies and I, I had the money. I could afford it to leave the music business, do eight straight years of college and get this PhD. And I'm happy to say, um, I thought I would love it. And I do. Yeah, that's I, awesome. I that's love it tremendously. It yeah. It's when you feel grab you, like you gravitate towards things. Uh, all right. So just two more questions. One, Jeff Page, uh, you had questions about frequencies. Yes, uh, actually, uh, I wanted to talk about like, now there's a bazillion opinions on frequencies and music and even more opinions on how they affect people, mm. especially when we're talking about the tune tuning of 432 hertz and 440 hertz. I mean, that's that's the biggest argument and debate that there is out there with frequencies. And we know there's a bunch of frequencies. Um, I find many hardcore musicians say there's no difference. It doesn't do anything. And then, of course, there's many others that say it does. And there was an article that I read um, where you told Reuters that there's no empirical research suggesting that the universe has a preferred acoustic frequency. <laughs> so my thing, well, at least that's what the article said. It yeah. was your quote. But what I was curious of is have you found that these frequencies, whether something's 432 versus 440, do affect people, and so at least because of their vibration resonation, have you found a difference in how people are affected, never mind the universe itself? Uh, no. <laughs> um, it, I, I don't think um, a lot of listeners today are aware of how often records are very sped. By that meaning sped up or slowed down in the mastering process to get that groove to be right where you want it to be. So many of the records I made with Prince are not tuned to A440. And it had nothing to do with the frequencies or any sort of analysis. It had to do with um, when we were in mastering, you sometimes think, you know what? This might sound better if we bumped it up a little bit. It might sound more energetic. So you speed it up a little bit. And now your A is no longer vibrating at 440 hertz. It might be 441 or 442 or something. You sped it up. Other times you might slow it down just a little bit. Um, people put, I think, too much stock in the idea that frequency is special. Our whole world is vibrating. All the colors we see are frequencies. All the sounds we hear are frequencies. Uh, I I don't know of any evidence that says that the human brain treats 440 any differently than it treats 432. Now, what is 
factually demonstrated is that certain musical instruments sound better in certain ranges, certain concert halls. This is a cool thing. Some concert halls actually sound best when music in a certain key is played in them. In other words, some of the great concert halls in Europe um, were designed for pieces that were in the key of C or pieces in the key of D from the resonance of the hall. So certainly there's compatibility between the acoustic world and uh, the vibrations that, that vibrating things are making and how they sound to us. But uh, I, I think th there's no reason to think that we'd have peace in our time if we all decided to tune to A432 instead of A440. We've actually been doing that for a long time, and uh, we don't have peace yet. Right. <laughs> and that kind of segues to my question, which would kind of be the, the last question that I had was uh, for you. So you're like, yay. Uh, and I've been dying to ask you about binaural beats. And obviously for those not familiar with binaural beats, there are frequencies, alpha, beta, zeta, whatever. Um, and I, I know it may lend itself a little bit to what we were just talking about, but I think binaural is a little bit different. There's like certain tonals. Like um, I know the, the, the time did this a lot where like was our, uh, here's a sample of the time doing it. Uh, and you hear this a lot on the time songs. Listen to the keyboard. This. You wonder how you do it. Just that one droning. I'm just cool. This, it, and, and they did this a lot in their songs where there's like one droning key mm -hmm. that like kind of. Like, I know it's like, a, it's it's obviously it sounds cool with, with, with everything, but it, it, I lends myself to believe that there's something else going on tonally that it's it's whether intentional or not. But what is your feelings on, um, and I don't want to insult binaural beats, but I mean, uh, due to your research, I mean, you know, what is your thoughts on binaural beats and, you know, mm -hmm. its ability to be able to uh, affect you, you know, to break bad habits, to sleep better, to, you know, diet better, to do all these things. What is your, what are your thoughts on? Yeah. That? I can tell you a little bit about uh, some of the research. There's not much research done on it, but I can tell you a little bit about about what I've I've learned. So binaural beating refers to slow wave amplitude modulations below 15 hertz or so. Now humans can only hear frequencies as low as 20 hertz, but below that we can't hear 15 hertz. We can't hear 10 hertz or 4 hertz. We don't hear it, we feel it. So the way you get uh, someone to perceive binaural beats is when you'd put, let's say, for example, they've got headphones on and in one ear you feed the frequency of, let's say it's 100 hertz, and in the other ear you feed the frequency of 104 hertz. So you're hearing a 4 hertz difference between the two ears. You're going to be experiencing these slow wave 4 hertz binaural beats that you do not hear, you feel it. And it makes most people feel kind of seasick. It's kind of aversive. People don't like it. We don't like beating because it, 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 it doesn't feel good necessarily. Piano tuners are experts at listening for beats. So in most piano um, notes, the little hammer comes down and it hits there's three vibrating strings, and those strings have to be really well-tuned because if they're off by a few hertz, you're going to hear beating. 
we don't like beating and that's why we tune our pianos so that we don't so that we don't hear beat frequencies but that's what binaural beating is it refers to the difference between your left and right ear in these slow wave uh, amplitude variations now i say that most people find them aversive and don't like them there is one study that i know of Beauchamp, I think was the author, came out about five or six years ago, and uh, it tested binaural beats and depression. And it turned out that most people did not like listening, <clears throat> pardon me, to binaural beats. However, people who were depressed and or anxious, if I'm recalling correctly, actually got a little bit of relief from their depression or their anxiety temporarily for a little while, thanks to these binaural beats. But my thinking is that the reason their depression went away is because is because the binaural beats were even worse. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, oh God, I thought I was sad before. I guess I'm not so bad after all. I don't have to listen to this. Uh, yeah, binaural beats do not do not feel good to listen to. Now you mentioned um, uh, delta, theta, alpha, beta waves gamma waves as well. What that refers to is um, our nervous system and the different frequencies at which our nervous system can oscillate throughout the day and throughout the night. If your nervous system, it's got some central structures up there, and if your nervous system is pinging at a rate of about one or two hertz or a rate of a little faster than that, that's the delta rhythm. A little faster than that, around four hertz is the theta rhythm. Those are, um, those are common when we're asleep. So when you're unconscious, your nervous system is oscillating at that really slow frequency. When you wake up or just before you fall asleep, you're in an alpha state. And that frequency is generally between 8 hertz and 13 hertz. You're in an alpha state, and that feels good because you're all relaxed. But when you wake up in the morning, you need to get from that alpha state up to the next state, which is the beta state. That's 15 to 30 hertz. And that's when your nervous system is, come on, you know, you're getting ready for work. You're awake. You're moving. You're having your coffee. You're not racing through your day. You're feeling good. Turns out music listening is really effective to get us into that feel-good beta rhythm. Music wakes us up when we're sleepy and if you go higher than the beta frequency, you're in the gamma frequency, which is very broad and very fast. That's when you're thinking and you're working and your, your nervous system is racing. Music is really good at bringing you back down from that racing state into that beta state that feels good. This has been shown in the laboratory. So music listening is good uh, for getting us into that beta band activity of 15 to 30 hertz. It does not mean that listening to 15 to 30 hertz will entrain your nervous system to sync up with it. It doesn't work like that. You can listen to Prince at 105 beats per minute and you'll be good. You'll be in that beta state. You don't need to do binaural beats. Well, yeah, I, I think that's uh, what were you going to say, Jeff? I know, I'll never have to worry about the binaural beat scenario because I'm deaf in one ear anyway. So. Oh, really? <laughs> not an issue for me so was brian wilson the great brian wilson yeah uh I'll stay depressed <laughs> <laughs> you want to listen to uh uh a, a couple a couple of quick notes uh, again pick up this book please i'm going to put up another uh a picture of this book um before you go for uh, 
is there any way we could get a bumper from you? We have, uh, we obviously have the online radio station. I would love to have a bumper. You saying this is Susan Rogers and you're listening to Funkatopia. Anytime you're ready. This is Susan Rogers and you're listening to Funkatopia. Perfect. That's awesome. Again, this book here is absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. It is, and I'm going to put the picture up again because I know the green screen is messing with it, but uh, it's uh, Susan's brand new book. This is what it sounds like. That is not from, this is what it feels like. It's from When Doves Cry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's called, This is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. And if you really are interested in all the music that you've listened to all your childhood and the way that this made you feel and some of the background information on how music affects you. This book is unfriggin' real. And there was a bunch of specific questions that we had to go, but I, I, you know, it, it is what it is. I, I, I want to again, be respectful of the time. And it has been an absolute positive honor to have you on mm-hmm. i mean um i can i, I did want to say a real real quick shout out though i want to give you a shout out for for talking about the movie koyana scotsy in this book oh <laughs> I love that movie philip glass i something intrigued me about this movie back uh and i did a mother-son date back with my mother in the 80s and i took her to go see this movie and i didn't really know what it was about but something about it intrigued me and after the movie was over i was like i I didn't know what it was about, Mom, but that was it was interesting for sure. We just we both were just sitting there watching this movie that didn't seemingly have any plot. It was a story you know, about destruction and everything else. And but I, when you mentioned that, I literally stopped up my tracks. I said, I haven't thought about that movie. Mm-hmm. Since but uh, again, what an amazing, amazing book! Um, I can't thank you enough. Again, new book out now. This is what it sounds like. Um, the link to purchase it, you can go to funkatopia.com slash Susan. And if you happen to be listening to this broadcast in your car and you're, again, the simple audio version of this, just go to funkatopia.com slash Susan and you can get the Amazon link there. Um, and, you know, again, I cannot thank you enough for being so forthright on some of these questions. I hope we Absolutely. ask, I hope we ask you some questions you haven't been asked, asked before. Yeah. And we'll have <laughs> thank to have you. a part two. Oh, okay. (laughs) Thank you so, so much for inviting me on and telling people about the book and letting me answer Prince questions. It warms my heart that so many people love him. Uh, And and, and are are interested in him musically. He deserves that. He's, He's truly extraordinary. Yeah, uh, if somebody was asking where is she teaching, she is right now, and correct me if I'm wrong, the professor of uh, of psychoacoustics at Berkeley right now, correct? Is that yeah? So I've I've just retired, I'm semi retired now, so I no longer teach at Berkeley on campus in Boston, uh, but I still teach for Berkeley online, and uh, I'm teaching a psychoacoustics course for Berkeley Online, and I'm writing a new course for Berkeley Online that will be titled Music and Neuroscience. So that'll be coming up, and I'll be wow. teaching that. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm posting all these uh, all these great comments of all these people that That's are so just, uh, yeah, everybody just is, loves it. Yeah, love Please pick book. up this book. And once again, thank you so, so much, Dr. Susan Rogers, for joining us tonight and being so patient and gracious with your time. Thank you so, so thank much. You. Thank you. Uh, really, really nice talking with you guys. And I hope you have uh, great success with the program and, and in your lives. Well, I, again, thank you so, so much. And I, 
can't wait to get your feedback on that Todd Rundgren song. Oh yeah, I, yeah, I listened to that Todd Rundgren song. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you so so much. Thank you Night. guys. Thank you. Bye. 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 All right, so um. So that was Susan Rogers, man. What a night of, uh, and you know, what's amazing is that we probably only got through about 70% of the questions yeah, because absolutely. it just kind of got to the point. I, I was not aware of how, just how detailed some of her answers were going to be and how gracious that she was in the time, but man, yeah, uh, yes. Great. Yeah. Hit that subscribe button on YouTube. Make sure that you subscribe to us so that when we do these interviews, you can be aware of when these are happening. And please, if you're on Facebook, please click follow. Uh, we are uh, right here at the at the border. We're about to cross over 23,000 followers on Facebook. So thank you guys so, so much, which is just friggin' amazing. Um, it's gonna, this is one of these this is one of these interviews that's going to have to be chopped up for sure. Oh, absolutely. Uh, because There's so much gold in it. There's so oh many gold nuggets. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean. Yeah, especially the vocal chain and the guitar chain question. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I mean, because people who have been trying to chase that sound, <laughs> she just, she literally told you everything that he used. And if you don't have that or you can't afford it, an alternate to use, gave you yep. everything it's it's just all there man what a what an amazing night um nothing on the books for nothing on the books for next week so we're probably going to take a break um because we've kind of just been hammering at it for uh week after week here so um and we got a bunch of personal stuff going on and whatnot but it has been if we didn't get to your question i am so sorry again we only got through about 70% of what we had intended and it was, we've already gone three hours. <laughs> so, That's right. <laughs> it was a very, very, very long night and, uh, it, and well worth it. Cause man, the information was just ridiculous. And so if you miss any part of this and you want to check it out, you can tune in uh, tomorrow and you can check it out on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, uh, Odyssey, um, I heart Apple music, wherever you listen to, to, to podcast, it was, we'll make sure that it's out there tomorrow so that you can check it out. And, um, SoundCloud. Yes. Yeah, SoundCloud. Yeah. SoundCloud. Yeah, yes. Everywhere. So wherever you listen to Stitcher, wherever. So it doesn't okay. matter. Wherever you listen. It doesn't easier. matter. <laughs> if you go to pot. Yeah. Everybody was like, wait, you're on iHeartRadio. Yes. We're on iHeartRadio. Wait, Absolutely. I thought all the radio stations on uh, Odyssey. You're on Odyssey too. Yep. I'm on that. Are you on Apple music? You're on Spotify. Yes. 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 So just go to any of the, whatever you listen to that stuff and just search for Funkatopia live and you'll be able to find us and uh, check it out there. And again, please remember to support us. Uh, you can uh, join us at patreon.com slash Funkatopia if you want some uh, unedited uh, files and whatnot and all kinds of really, really cool stuff. You can also do one-time donations on Venmo and Cash App, dollar sign Funkatopia on Cash App, at sign Funkatopia. It, it, it's all good. Uh, we need plenty of support because we have the online radio station and also the Funked Up app, which you can download for uh, on your iPhone and also in Google Play for Android. Just search for Funked Up, F-U-N-K-E-D-U-P, 
funked up and you'll be able to download a ASCAP licensed radio station, two radio stations, actually one to 24 seven funk. It does all the old school uh, classics like the Ohio players and parliament funkadelic and earth, wind and fire. And of course, Prince and new stuff too, new master sounds, lettuce, all those great funk bands. And we also have a 24 seven Prince radio station called purple Yoda radio. Just download the app and you can access both of those radio stations for free. And yes, it is ASCAP licensed, which is one of the reasons why we asked for your support. <laughs> because ASCAP <laughs> licensing is not cheap, just uh, so we're clear. Uh, so make sure that you, um, yes, just uh, check it out. And absolutely, we we love all your support and continued love and uh, all your kind comments are seeing all this stuff. And um, yes, love to get Wendy and Lisa on the show. I'm watching it. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> That'd be it. Yes, because uh, I love me some Wendy and Lisa, and I will have all the CDs and everything just oh, all at this desk because <laughs> I am like obsessed with Wendy and Lisa. Um, I just they're I just think that they're masterminds and geniuses, and love yeah, to have. Yeah, I love Wendy and Lisa. We, I, I always joke with uh, a buddy of mine about uh, when "Are You My Baby" came out, and uh, actually Terry Terry Orlando Jones, who you. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Questions. He, yeah. he he used to play with me in Boston. He's my drummer, and uh, it it was the same thing. Uh, he, one day he came over, and we started jamming, and I started playing "Ooh, Are You My Baby," and we we just I think we played that for the rest of the night. <laughs> oh man, that "Are You My Baby" is like bam, It's like it's just I I don't understand how that album yeah. didn't explode. It didn't make any sense to me because. There were so many great albums in that period, but that was definitely one of them. Um, Maggie's Dream was another one that was another great album that nobody paid attention to. Wendy and Lisa, uh, that album, all the first three albums was just like great. What yeah, amazing! Like, what are you talking about? I don't even. I mean, not the Girl Brothers and the other one. Nice. I, I'm, they're all great, but I just don't. I just don't understand the marketing and how people just. You know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. All right. Good night, everyone. Get some sleep. We're going to make sure that we get this uh, out to you ASAP. Good night, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to A Funkatopia Live, and we will talk to you at some point. (laughs) Good night, everyone. Thank you so, so much. Oh, let me turn the radio station back over to you guys, you fine folks. All right, here you go, radio station listeners. Your music is back on. (laughs) All right, everybody. Good night.